Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we've got a first today. We've got not one, not two, but three interviews to get to. It's a lot, it's a lot. And didn't exactly plan it to be that way, just kinda happened. I feel bad saying that other pods are loaded because this truly is loaded. Little bit of everything for you. Got Kentucky quarterback Will Levis, our good buddy Chris Doring, and then Garrett Cribs, the VP of the UGA Spike Squad. They're all gonna join us in a bit here. And then we've of course got our usual week three picks and over-unders. So to prevent this from being a two hour episode, because a lot of good stuff, a lot of really good stuff, and I don't want people to miss out or be scared because the episode's really long, we will not be doing figuring out or bold and brash today. Got some USC thoughts that we're gonna hit on at the very end with that job opening up. But first, our friends at Texas Pete. Will, I got the Texas Pete wing sauce. Put it on my, okay. put it on my air fryer chicken. Game changer. It's great because I'm one of those people that, I, I love buffalo wings. Um, people listening to this, I assume the vast majority of people love buffalo wings. And I also try oh, yeah. to eat relatively healthy, right? Like you you know how there are certain cravings that you get, you're like, ah, can I do something to kind of you know satisfy this craving and, and give me something that, that feels like I'm getting a little bit of that experience. The best part about the Texas Pete wing sauce is I can do my air fryer chicken and then I can put some of that Texas wing sauce on there and it's guilt-free. It's got a little bit of fat in Texas wing, Texas Pete wing sauce, but that's totally fine. Just a little bit here. There's not fried chicken. Wait, so you're telling me this is the secret to healthy wings? Yes. Oh, I'm dropping a hundo let's, now. Let's it's, it's over with. It's over with. This is the healthy lifestyle if we got healthy wings. With some Texas Pete on there, let's go. The sauce, the sauce life is, is the way to go. That's the way to, to shed those LBs if you're looking to do that. Now I've got the standard hot sauce. I've got the wing sauce as well. I can mix it up a little bit. I had our producer Dan text me, said that I nailed the avocado toast with Texas Pete call. I'm telling you, if you haven't tried it yet, you need to do so. A little Texas Pete, a little salt, money in the bank on your avocado toast. This is the perfect time of year to load up on Texas Pete, not only because it's football season, but because right now for our listeners, you can go to texaspeat.com and get recipes, t-shirts, hats, hot sauces by the box, whatever you want. It's there if you do that all you got to do use that promo code saturday down south and you're going to get 20 percent off your entire order with that promo code all one word saturday down south go to texaspeat.com use that promo code sauce like you mean it week three is here in the sec we've got picks we've got over-unders we're gonna do things a little bit differently, just a touch differently today. Because of the length of this episode, and having three interviews, we're gonna skip the matchups versus the FCS teams. So sorry, Mizzou, sorry, Kentucky, sorry, Tennessee. If something interesting comes from those games, we'll hit on it Sunday. Let's start with a big one. Alabama and Florida. Alabama's a 14 and a half point favorite. The over-under that I have, 12 Anthony Richardson touches. Dan Mullen said, despite the hamstring injury, he's been practicing every day, he's been getting his treatment. He's only played 37 snaps so far. Still waiting to see what he looks like on Saturday. Maybe that's a game time decision. I gotta think if there's any way that he can get on the field, he's gonna do everything in his power to make sure that that can happen. Talked about this with, uh, with CD, so I'll keep it relatively short on this so I don't repeat a bunch of thoughts. The stat that would terrify me as a Florida fan, we kind of danced around this a little bit uh, the other day. 
since 2009, there are 15 starting quarterbacks who beat Alabama. In those 15 games, those guys threw a combined three interceptions. Nobody has thrown wow. multiple interceptions and beaten Alabama during that stretch. The last quarterback to throw an interception and beat Alabama, Cardale Jones, 2014. Jeez, bro. So once you throw a pick against Alabama, it's over. You're done. You're done. This is what you're telling yes, me. Yes, basically. Every Jones threw multiple picks against FAU and USF. It's pretty simple. Two quality opponents. Um, similar to Alabama. When I think about the Alabama Crimson Tide, the next team that pops in my head is the USF Bulls. It all depends on your definition of quality, which might be different than mine. <laughs> This is pretty easy though. And we try and look for different things and different keys to the game. And there are a lot of factors that'll go into this matchup, but gosh, it just kind of seems like if Emory Jones continues to make the mistakes that he's made in the first two weeks, it's gonna be a route. And even Florida fans would admit that. You cannot overcome those mistakes and beat Alabama. If you're going to beat Alabama, you need one of two things. You need the out-of-body experience like Steven Garcia had, like Johnny Manziel had to a certain extent. Even the comeback was kind of an out-of-body experience. Or you need to have multiple non-offensive touchdowns like Bo Nix got in the 2019 Iron Bowl. That's what I can't get around with this one though. I can't see a scenario in which Emory Jones plays perfect football against Alabama. Defense is too good. At the same time, I'll admit this, people forget that Steven Garcia was benched in the game before Alabama and it wasn't even necessarily a given that he was going to be starting that week. Can Emory have that out of body experience? Against that Alabama front, which may or may not have Will Anderson, don't know his status just yet as of this recording on Wednesday at 12.15 p.m. I, I don't think that Emory Jones can be trusted for 60 minutes of, of mistake-free football. And I get it, he's not gonna play 60 minutes probably if Anthony Richardson's out there, but in a weird way, and this is how much I've thought about this, could Emory making a key mistake have long-term benefits for Florida? Like it prompts Dan Mullen to turn to AR-15 full-time early on in this game if Emory throws a first quarter pick. If he just decides I'm gonna go with my first read and throws it right into the arms of Malachi Moore, and then pretty soon it's, all right, Anthony Richardson, get out there. Let's see if you can salvage us. I think there are Florida fans who might have that in the back of their mind and might be thinking about that if he makes some mistakes. All I know is I have major doubts about Florida hanging around with this. And maybe there's also something in the back of my mind about Dan Mullen being 2-28 career against teams who finish in the AP Top 10. Alabama's going to finish in the AP Top 10. Remember that stat that we brought that we brought that up a, a few weeks ago, and we had to like go through that like two or three times because of how absurd it is. Dan Mullen being two and twenty-eight lifetime against teams who finish in the AP top ten. I try to play devil's advocate and think, you know, maybe maybe Bryce Young is going to look like the twenty nineteen version of Bo Nix when he went to the swamp for his first real road game. And then I saw Bryce Young's poise in the opener, albeit at a neutral site, and I thought, you know. I don't think that there could be some of that that same sort of, I'm running for my life, I'm backpedaling constantly. I, I don't think he's that type of guy. Even if Carter and Cox and Moon, if they're firing off the ball, which I expect they'll be, I think he finds a way to escape that. And I think about him picking apart Todd Grantham's defense, which can be exposed on the back end. That's where the Gators have their weakness defensively. And they've been able to get home for the most part in these first two games against inferior competition. I think Bama wins. I think Bama wins big, like 28 points big. 
hopefully. Oh. Yeah, I know. And I, I, I came into the year thinking maybe this Florida team can be one of those 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 reality check moments for Alabama where Alabama loses this game and then Alabama goes on to win a national championship after it and it's just kind of the wake up call it's the 2015 Ole Miss all over again whatever you want to call it hopefully no Florida fans are paying four grand for an Airbnb I really hope that um, Ross Ellinger tweeted this out I love Gainesville I really do I always enjoy myself when I'm there I I, I like kind of the, the the development of breweries and stuff like that. Cool little downtown, two hours away from here, so we've made the trip a few times. I'm thinking maybe that I should put my my um, my guest bedroom on Airbnb, $500 for Saturday night, just kind of see what it is. I can't imagine paying four grand, four grand for that. I get it, like, look, this is a, a big time matchup. Florida hasn't even hosted a top five team since LSU in 2018, a game that I was at, a game that I still to this day say I have never heard a college stadium that loud. But the problem is if somebody wants to stay with me, $500, guest bedroom, just gonna throw that out there. Um, I'm gonna be watching football until two in the morning, probably gonna be up at seven in the morning to, to record. So um, take that for a while. You as an Airbnb host would be an incredible experience. You'd be that dude, be like, hey, good morning, sunshine, with a little omelet with some egg whites going. I'd be hungover as hell after watching like Florida just lose and it's like, buddy, what are you doing? <laughs> right? I, have the, I have the Texas Pete avocado toast ready to go. I try to be exactly. super gracious. I would, I would definitely be one of those people that you would think to yourself, wait, I thought this was an Airbnb, not like a bed and breakfast. And I would be one of those people that would want to want to talk ball with them or something like that. Meanwhile, they're just drowning their sorrows, getting back here, probably getting back like relatively late. I would assume on Saturday night, they're just like, don't talk to me. I hope for the sake of Florida fans that it's not that excruciating because getting that hyped up when number one comes to your house and then seeing the letdown and watching the air get let out of the stadium is a tough, tough look. And there are, there are certain memories that could stick with Florida fans if Dan Mullen and his offense doesn't explode in this one. And if it is that lopsided, not great, not great. Will, how do you see this one playing out? Did you ever see that thread about um, like Steph Curry's parents where it was that whole thing about like, you don't wanna be out here? Oh, I didn't see that. No, 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 go ahead. Shout out Peter Burns. He actually had like a really good meme of that the other day, but he was talking about like Steph Curry's dad being single. He's like, trust me, you only think you want to be out here because you're not out here. The world has changed since you were single. And it's like, that's how I feel with like SEC East teams playing Bama. It's like, okay, like you have a good year. You think you want to be out here. You think you want to play Bama. You think that, you know, you're ready or X, Y, and Z. And it's like, I've talked about this before. As an LSU fan, there is no pain worse than feeling like, all right, like we're, we're ready. We'll have a number one Alabama role in the town and just go to town. And you just sit there. This is like what happened to me in 2018. Now, granted, Florida is coming off of a good season. Like, it's not like this is their apex season, but it's like, man, it's not fun. And any team, I've said this numerous times, that you cheer for a team in the SEC East, be thankful because there is nothing quite like getting excited all game week because by about Friday, you start talking yourself into it. You start going, okay, this is the year. We got it. And um, it it's just, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, the, here's the thing. You talked about the quarterbacks that have beaten Alabama. And if you remember, I'd say about as late as 2014, 2015, the whole book on Alabama was you had to have a mobile <laughs> quarterback. That was after, you know, Cam Newton, shout out Jordan Jefferson. Uh, a couple of guys had, you know, gone in there. Manziel was another one that it's like, okay, well, if you get these big D linemen, you know, moving back and forth, 
that's not Alabama anymore. They got some speedy linebackers. They got some dudes that are daring you to run the ball. The one X factor, like you said, is AR-15. Um, and I think they could, you know, if I was him, I'd be asking to get rolled out on that field like a, like a Paul Pierce in the wheelchair. And no matter how healthy he is, you gotta have him out there for a decoy play or something because as we know, he's the most explosive athlete on Florida. And hopefully, you know, this is the game he gets uncorked. Um, the thing about Emory, and you know, we've talked about it, he's fallen a little bit short of the PFF number one overall draft pick billing that he had in this offseason. I think he's been fine. I don't think he's been bad necessarily. Um, but it's, it's just, it's one of those things that regardless of how you spin it, um, you need to have a great quarterback performance in some exactly. way. You know what exactly. I'm saying? The only one that you could kind of say was Bo Wallace, but he that was like a great Bo Wallace game. That was like the game of his life. You know what I'm saying? So it's taken of recent, it's taken guys, even like Bo Nix having like the game of his career. And so 50% I don't know, I mean, in that game I, too. Like, it wasn't yeah. that, was, that that is kind of an exception. Yeah. Like that was more of like a Auburn being Auburn, and like the thing I talked about, we talked about in the offseason is like you just never know about Auburn. Um, you kind of do know about Dan Mullen. Just gonna be honest, you're right. Two and twenty-eight just kind of speaks for itself. Never beaten Bama, I believe he's what zero and eleven all time. Um, it's just. It just is what it is. This might be the year, and it's if you're a Florida fan, you gotta feel like it's house money. You know what I'm saying? You gotta feel like, okay, boom, we're gonna have fun this year. This isn't gonna be like 2018 LSU. This isn't gonna be our measuring stick game against Bama. We already had that in the in last year's SEC championship game, and that was a close game. You know what I'm saying? You could take away a lot of stuff from that game, but if you're a Florida fan, if you're a Dan Mullen fan, you can tell yourself, we just had a good Florida team play a good Bama team, and they got within one score at the if end. If that happened so, again, if that happened again, I think you take that if you're Florida, right? I, right. I, I'd be really encouraged if I saw that play out. And Florida fans would turn that into fire Todd Grantham, of course. So there's, you know, you, get, you gotta pick your poison here. But in a weird way, if that if that type of game repeated itself and if it was at least entertaining and you see these moments from Emory Jones where it looks like he does figure it out and he goes toe to toe with Bryce Young, that's totally different. That's, that's a much different narrative that we're following moving forward. And there are a lot of ways in which you could, you, you could lose to Alabama. We've seen that over the years. But Buddy Havley. Yeah. I mean, no shortage <laughs> of those. Brenton Cox had this comment that made me think, oh, why are you saying this? Why are you saying this? And I don't want to take this too out of context or anything like that. But Brenton Cox said that Florida will be ready, and the big question is if Alabama will be ready. Edgar Thompson of the Orlando Sentinel had that quote. Here's a question. When was the last time that Bama wasn't ready for a crazy road atmosphere? Because I actually thought they were ready to go in the 2019 Iron Bowl. Had two bad picks, that's the difference in that game. And I think maybe the 2017 Iron Bowl was the last time when you thought, oh, Bama's not the best team on the field and it's it's obvious you know people forget you know yeah. 2019 they hosted lsu so it's a little bit different there but 2017 so it's been probably what almost four years since bama has truly not been ready and i thought at the time it was more product of being limited offensively and they weren't necessarily comfortable jalen hurts wasn't comfortable all year in brian dable's offense and Auburn played a better game. They played a better game at Jordan Hare, and that's Carryon Johnson had an, had an awesome game. Kind of left it all on the field that that day. But to say that 
Oh yeah, there was after that game. There was nothing left in the tank. I know. Right? I don't think we've seen that carry on again it's since sad. that day. Uh, he was so he was and he was good that that whole year. I, I thought he was effective that day, but just the workload, man, that was that was a lot to handle. Oh yeah, that game and that that uh, Georgia game. Oh my goodness. I mean, that was like like I said, Auburn regular it's season. Just, yeah, it just happens. Yeah, it's just Auburn's. It's just it's a verb. So is, to say that you don't know if Bama's going to be ready. I, I don't know. I think Bama's going to be ready. Bama's going to be ready. And maybe I'll be wrong. And, and I'll eat plenty of Crow Florida fans if, if I'm wrong. But I hope we have a good game. I really do. I, I hope we get it's, – it's fun to kind of see Bama in these tough atmospheres and not necessarily just show up and take the life out of the place. You know, Connor, I thought about how I could work this into the podcast, but I respect you, so I won't do that. I'll just ask you the question. How shocking was it for you to learn that, you know, Nick Saban loves a good D's nuts joke? So when I heard that um, – <laughs> Tip of the cap to Michael Casagrande for asking that question that prompted the answer that we that we ultimately got. I need to hear this in a live setting. I need to hear a, a mic'd up Saban, somebody, and, and I know LSU has been in trouble in the past for doing the post-game IG live in the locker room and stuff, but we need to get that moment from Saban. We get these little snippets of him where he gets told about the Jimbo Fisher comment and then he says, you know, Jimbo says that he's going to beat your you-know-what, and then Saban says in golf. That's that's all well and good. We've had those. We need a these nuts moment from Saban. Maybe winning another We need, like, Julio Jones or, like, Mark Ingram or some dude that's a made man in the NFL to just come to Alabama practice and be like, man... Coach, it's a really tough day for D's, isn't it? <laughs> just <laughs> just, just it see what happens. Let it sit right there. Yeah. Uh, Saban might uh, might be feeling pretty good if he's able to pull off a win on Saturday. Wouldn't necessarily expect that, to hear that on the post game, uh, SEC on CBS um, uh, on, on the call there. First SEC on CBS game of the year. Going to be hopefully a good one. Fingers crossed. New Mexico, Texas A&M. Texas A&M is a 29 and a half point favorite. The over under that I have. One flashback shot to the time that Terry Wilson played at Texas A&M in 2018. Why? Because our favorite neighbor, Terry Wilson, is New Mexico's starting quarterback. Here's something a little weird. The visiting starting quarterback in this game has more starts in that stadium than the home team starting quarterback. Weird, right? Think about that one. I just put your brain in a pretzel. Interesting. First, yeah. first career start for Zach Calzada. Found out that Haynes King out until mid-October with the fractured ankle. Big injury for AM. And we, we hit on some of this stuff on Sunday, but we didn't necessarily know at the time how long that Haynes King was going to be out when we recorded. I'm no longer picking AM to beat Bama. I know this isn't the Bama game. I just want that on record. Want to get out ahead of that. I'm worried about the next month for Zach Calzada. And I know that he kind of settled in late in that game. And AM fans, the optimistic ones, the glass half full ones are looking at that and thinking he's going to be fine. And he'll probably be fine this week. But after this week, Barry Odom, Zach Garnett, Nick Saban. AM fans. I was about to say, man, that that Arkansas beats AM projection is looking looking good. I'm, I'm definitely sticking with that one. And I, I for what it's worth, I had that with Haynes King as AM's starting quarterback. That's gonna be a really good game. I'm excited for that one. Might have to get an Arkansas related guest on the pod for that. Working on a couple of options for that. We'll see. We'll see. Bill Clinton? Um probably the next step <laughs> below Bill Clinton. That's your only hint. That's your only hint. We're, we're working on it. We're, we're, okay. we're trying to work our magic a little bit. AM fans, if you're resetting expectations, which I kind of think you have to do at this point, 
your your goal, just like with Saturday against Colorado, it, it is no longer style points moving forward. Don't worry about looking the part of top five team. If AM can get Haynes King back with just one loss, that'll be a win. And I say that even though I'm high on the Aggies. I, I really am. And I, I think that you look at the struggles of Zach Calzada and the lack of a downfield passing attack is troubling. And you're going to get more time against New Mexico, so you should be able to stretch the field more. I think this is a big Caleb Chapman game. This is really the first breakout game that he has since he returned from the torn ACL that he suffered against Florida last year. But if your offense is limited, it just kind of changes what you're capable of. And I, I, I do still think the defense is going to have really, really good moments. And I'm, I love that defensive line so much. It's my favorite defensive line in all of college football. I, I just love what Leal and PV are able to do up front, probably even more so than Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt at Georgia. That's saying something. But I think that A&M is going to have to find ways to win ugly. And after this week, of course. The good news is that this week is going to be a set your feet type of week for Zach Calzada. Favorable matchup against New Mexico. I don't think he looks as rattled. Full week to prepare. Should control the battle at the line of scrimmage as well. I think the Aggies do. And as much as I love neighbor Terry Wilson, and I'm here for him getting his, what is this, his sixth year? No, he was in the same class as Justin Herbert. So I think it's only... Yeah, no, I think it is a six year, come to think of it. I think he was, he was a 2016 recruit. Yeah, I think I did that right. I'm picking the Aggies to win this one, 38-7. Georgia Southern, Arkansas. Just talk a little bit about the Hogs. Arkansas is a 23 and a half point favorite. The over-under, I have 13 mentions of the Texas win. <laughs> There's gonna be a lot. That's also kind of the danger of this game because Georgia Southern seems like it plays at least one SEC team every year and we always talk about how Gap disciplined, are you going to be against a triple option team? It is a grinded out type of game. Three o'clock local time start. You're in the top 25 for the first time in five years. You've got everyone telling you how great you are. Sam Pittman is everyone's national darling right now. By the way, mm -hmm. uh, in regards to, to Pittman, I said something really dumb on Sunday's pod and my guy, Robert Fellow, shout out to him. He pointed this out. I'm sure others heard it and thought, you idiot, what are you talking about? I did something that, um, it shouldn't be punishable by death in the state of Arkansas, but it should be, I should be subject to some public humiliation because I felt really dumb about this. I confused Chad Go Morris on. and Sam Pittman. You can't do that. Mm. I said that Hunter Juracek technically didn't hire Pittman and I was totally wrong about that. Dumb brain moment. It was the Morris hire that Juracek was just coming on board for. So apologies for that because that was a stupid mistake on my part. Pittman is Juracek's hire through and through. That is his guy. They are very much connected moving forward. As for this game, pretty low spread. Only 23 and a half after the way that Arkansas came out and beat Texas the way that it did. I think the, the, the hangover factor is kind of baked into that. And even though Georgia Southern did just get clobbered by FAU, who is not particularly good, I could kind of see one of these 24 to seven Arkansas wins that's like 10 to seven midway through, through the second quarter. You're just kind of wondering, oh, is Arkansas gonna get going? And then the ground game takes over down the stretch. So I don't think Arkansas covers in this particular game. Will, is the hangover thing real or is that just kind of overblown? Well, it's tough because like 
This is, uh, whenever you think about that type of offense, you think about number one, Nick Saban talking about that way back in the day. Like I want to say like 2010, 2011 maybe. I, I feel like it was a Yeldon year, so maybe it was a little bit later than that. But he was basically just like, why do we schedule these triple option teams? They do cut blocks, they do X, Y, and Z. Like this isn't, you have to completely change what you're doing. It doesn't help us prepare. It's really just, it's a, a risk. And then you know, Georgia Southern's a team that beat Florida. Like, I, I think that that's a very fair line. I, don't think, I think that's a high line because if you come over that big emotional win against Texas, which the criticism like we talked about with Texas is that they just got ate up in the trenches and they were kind of soft, and you get, you know, Georgia's other team that their whole offense is just to knock the heck out of you. Like, it's just, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just not a great opponent uh, after a game like that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I big respect to them, obviously. And, yeah, I, I think that's definitely a fair Wait, line. At the risk of saying another three three five type of comment, <laughs> Did you say Georgia Southern beat Florida? Yeah. What, what what year are we talking about here? Am I blanking on this game? That was that real bad Florida team. I want to say it was um, Must Champs last year. That was the one with uh, Jared McKinnon when the guys were blocking. That's right. That's like, right. Two okay. Florida guys were flocking. Okay. That was Georgia Southern. Okay. My bad. My bad. My bad. Listen. The depths of my slander, no, no bounce. It's, That's just stuck in there like a spider okay. web. I'll never forget it. Connor. Fair enough. You, you were absolutely <laughs> right on that. I needed, to, I needed to backtrack for that because sometimes stuff that's like before I came on board with, you know, with this job, I'm just like, wait a minute, 2014. I'm trying to think back to the schedule there, but um, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it is a little bit of a dangerous opponent, and you want to just try and stay healthy. I think that's that's what Arkansas wants more than anything else because. The SEC slate, it's coming up. Everybody's looking forward to that AM game. It can be a potential sleeper game. Gotta be gap disciplined in this one. Mississippi State is a three and a half point favorite on the road at Memphis. The over-under I have, 1.5 mentions of Memphis's success against Mississippi SEC schools. And Ole Miss fans, relax. Um, <laughs> I know Memphis beat Ole Miss 2019, 2015. Two of the last four, technically. Even though Ole Miss historically 47, 12, and 2, I think it is against Memphis all time. So, really, not much of a, a lopsided advantage. I'm not saying that Memphis owns Ole Miss or anything like that. But hey, a connection to the Magnolia mm -hmm. State. Kind of a bad matchup for Mississippi State. Memphis is rolling offensively right now. They lost their quarterback, <laughs> Arizona transfer Grant Gunnell. Did it matter? They just bring in this true freshman, Seth, Seth Hennigan, and kid has been lights out. They had nearly 700 yards of offense on Saturday against Arkansas State. An inferior Arkansas State team, they're not dealing with the defense of Zach Garnett. I get that. Big 3-3-5 guys we are. Calvin Austin mm -hmm. and the tight end, Sean Dykes, give them a little bit something different in the passing game. And if you lock in on that, Brandon Thomas, the tailback, can burn you with that home run playability. Kids averaging 169 rushing yards a game and get this 10 yards per carry. Pretty good. Not quite Anthony Richardson good, but pretty good. I'm a Zach Garnett believer. We both are. But I also believe this is the best offense that his team has faced so far. And I think mm -hmm. a few of those chunk plays prove costly in this one. So combine that with the fact that I'm also a big Mike McIntyre guy. I own stock in both defensive coordinators in this game. I want the record to show that. Friend of the show, Mike McIntyre. You know he's been prepping for the air raid all offseason. And how important mm -hmm. this game is for Memphis. I think we see MSU's offensive inconsistency play out on the road. So I don't think Memphis just covers. I think Memphis wins outright. I have this one 28-21 to Memphis. And I, and this, I had this in the preseason as well, so I'm kind of sticking with that. I don't necessarily know that 
MSU has pushed me off of any of my preseason takes, although I think it's taken a little bit longer for that offense to get going, and I know that the MSU faithful are very much in agreement with that. South Carolina, Georgia. Oh boy, Georgia's a 31 and a half point favorite. The over-under I have, six Will Muschamp references. Ah, the great Will Muschamp reunion. Fun connection here. Will Muschamp is on the other sideline now, in case you haven't heard. Shane Beamer also- Which is official title? Sorry. Special teams coach officially now because of the Scott Cochran Okay, so he's not like intern butch or anything. No, no, no. He has like a real- He is an on-field assistant because of the Scott Cochran departure. That's something that, that Mike Griffith talked about as well, about how that was kind of a nice little thing for Kirby to be able to turn to to say, you know what, you've got all this experience, you've game plan for a lot of different SEC teams, you can be valuable in this room to be able to do that. So we're gonna get a lot of mentions of that. We're gonna get a lot of mentions of Beamer being on Kirby Smart staff as well. I, I love Shane Beamer, and I think he's doing things the right way, but do I think we're gonna get a flashback to 2019? No, just don't. I don't think this offense for South Carolina has a snowball's chance in hell against Georgia. I just don't. I'm going to be surprised if they score an offensive touchdown, regardless of if, if it's Doty or if it's Nolan. I assume it's going to be Doty. I assumed it was going to be Doty last week, and it wasn't. Beamer said that they expect him to be 100% on Saturday, which is a little bit different than the way that he was talking about it last week. But Whatever the case is, I still think that you just can't be one-dimensional against that Georgia defense. I don't know if you can even be two-dimensional against that Georgia defense. They'll still find a way to beat you. And if this is Luke Doty's first- You gotta be three-dimensional, son. Like a, like a polygon. Great point. Three-dimensional teams are super underrated. South Carolina should look into being one of those. Luke Doty's first game back, I think this is gonna be really difficult for him. I missed this over the weekend. I'm really frustrated that I did. There was a play with Jordan Davis, and I think it was I think it was one of the rivals guys who tweeted this out, so I apologies for, for missing who exactly had this, but the UAB quarterback got outside of the pocket and he scrambled. And you know, we're we're very accustomed to watching defensive ends, linebackers, safeties come in from the backside and they'll kind of cut him off and prevent him from getting a first down or something like that. Our football eyes are very trained to see this. But what my football eyes are not trained to see is a 360 pound man chasing down a quarterback and preventing him from getting to the line to gain. And that is exactly what Jordan Davis did. The guy's a machine, he's unbelievable. And you cannot and will not run away from this Georgia defense. They pursue you and they are on you all game. Doesn't matter who they bring in, they just rotate dudes nonstop. I'm not sure that it matters who starts a quarterback for Georgia either. Stetson Bennett now has a back issue. He's also uh, questionable for Saturday. JT Daniels, Kirby said, still working his way back, not quite at 100%, gonna, gonna go by this day by day. Maybe Carson Beck starts, and I kinda hope that happens. Because if it does, Georgia would become the first team in football history to start three different quarterbacks in their first three games as a top five team. At least I think so. Don't check me on that. There's no way anybody else has ever done that, right? Not in the top five. No, <laughs> no way. way. Yeah, I was about to say, I feel like 08 LSU did that, but boy, weren't they top five after three weeks. Yeah, to, to stay in the <laughs> anyway. top five, to win and stay in the top five, that, that would be an incredible Exactly. Thing. But yeah, I, I know that the South Carolina fans, you should be feeling good about Shane Beamer. I don't think this is one of those games in which you're, you're 
overall encouraged by the year one roster that he inherited. And Vegas doesn't care who starts either because the spread is 31 and a half. I have Georgia winning 42 to three, no flashbacks in 2019 at all. Don't think that happens. Well, let's talk a little LSU here. LSU's- Sure, man, if you insist. I insist, I do. We had the debate going into this. Are we gonna talk about LSU today? No, we're still gonna talk about LSU. LSU's an 18 and a half point favorite against Central Michigan. Gonna get to that spread in a second, but the over-under I have, 15 return of the Mac references in my brain constantly while watching this game. I swear, if Jim McElwain is not back for this one, because he did return last week after his appendicitis, he missed the Mizzou game, was able to return for Central Michigan's second game, but if he doesn't return for this, I'm just gonna think he's ducking the SEC and what a bad look that would be. <laughs> and maybe he just doesn't want me to be happy and think about all the return of the Mac references I can make throughout the course of this game or writing about this game. Here's the thing. I think Central Michigan's like, all right. They're, they're perfectly fine. They covered against Mizzou in Columbia without McElwain. They won 45 to nothing in this scrimmage that they played last week against Robert Morris. I, I do worry about this LSU team. One of the things that I haven't really picked up on as much is, and Ed O'Drum brought this up midweek. Will, maybe you picked up on this. He said that they're taking too long to get plays in. That's something I never talk about, but I notice while I'm watching a game, defenses are getting mm -hmm. too much time to adjust. And that's kind of one of the, the risks of hiring a first-time offensive coordinator, which you have in Jake Peets. Go back to 2019 with Joe Brady and Steve Ensminger. We talked a lot about that dynamic and how they split play calling duties, 60-40, 70-30, whatever it was. That was never an issue. They were always ready to roll with whatever plays. Those guys knew their roles, and Joe Burrow always had time to be able to adjust at the line of scrimmage. It was never getting down to the final seconds of the play clock or rushing up to the line of scrimmage, and then you know everything kind of speeds up before you even get there. And you know, Joe Burrow always looks so relaxed, and he could check into whatever looks that he wanted. As I've said, my favorite was when he would check into a draw for himself. I love that play. Mm -hmm. It worked 99% of the time. Probably worked 100% of the time. Um, we talked about all offseason, Max Johnson fitting in with Jake Peets. You have to get on the same page this week because after this, it's an uphill climb. Will, have you noticed that, the not getting the play call in soon enough with LSU? Yeah, no, I, I think you totally hit the nail on the head there as far as, you know, if you have a young quarterback, if you have a disorganized offensive line, if you got, you know, running backs that are not showing up to their underwater basket weaving classes. Just kidding, we know that that's like a whole issue. Weird story with John that. Emery, that's, really a, weird story. Yeah, it's a weird story, that was a bad joke by me. It's just, you gotta have a little bit of uh, levity as an LSU fan, but yeah, I, I, if you got all this inconsistency, you want to, as a coach, as you know, as a man, you want to get in there and have have a little sense of calm. And like you said, like Joe Burrow, all the veterans and the good LSU teams were able to kind of bring that presence. I, you're 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 exactly right. From this game, I hope that Jake Peets and kind of you know take and DJ DJ Mangus, the uh, passing coordinator, can kind of take over and be like, all right, guys, relax. Be comfortable. Here's what we're going to do. Because honestly, it's been talked about, you know, Max Johnson might need to get a little bit more involved in the run game uh, with all these issues with the running back and everything. So it's like, if you have a quarterback in that situation, he needs to know that he's comfortable and that you have his best interest at heart. So yeah, I think this is a perfect tune-up game. You know, as LSU looks forward to, to Auburn next week. Um, and it's like, yeah, I think that they... Um, I think this is great because, like you said, this is not a walkover team. This is a team that is coached by a. Uh, sorry, it's Mississippi State. I was going to say that wrong. Yeah. Um, it won't, yeah, I think it's another another week yeah. after that. Yeah. 
Uh, yes, calendar. <laughs> anyway, so uh, point being, Mississippi State, even more so, great 3-3-5 defense out there. But uh, point being, um, yeah, it's, this is a not, not a walkover team. You know, they looked really good against Mizzou. Um, and a Mizzou team that, you know, looked really good last week. So I, I think that this is going to be a big-time prove-it game for LSU. And hopefully they can show that they have this talent and they can just kind of Keep it pushing. Man. Not to keep harping on the John Emery thing, um, because there's probably a lot more that we're going to find out about that. And I always take notice when Hester tweets about something and, and kind of puts himself out there of like, hey, rest of the world, you don't really know what's going on here. And there's a lawsuit going yeah. on with the family and the school, just just a mess. But that that's just like one additional thing that hasn't gone right for this ground game. And I'm not saying that LSU should be dismissed and that they deserve all these excuses or anything like that, but it, it obviously shows. The ground game has had like every bad thing happen. You lose Dare Rosenthal yep. to Kentucky. You have multiple offensive line injured early in the season. Chris Curry, people kind of forget, transferred to Utah in the offseason. Yep. You're just lacking options. And if it does turn into, Max Johnson, we need you to move the sticks with your legs, that's not great either because you lost TJ Finley in that quarterback room. You lost Miles Brennan in that quarterback room. And if it's just Garrett Nussmeyer behind you, that is a major, major risk. And you've seen your quarterbacks go down. And so if that's factoring into it, this is not the game that you you should need Max Johnson to have double-digit carries or anything like that. I can't pick LSU to cover a spread against an FBS team with a clue. I just can't at this point. No, yeah. I, I, 18 is like, stay away from that, man. Like, maybe they figure it all out, but it just seems like things are getting, like, more distended over time. And then also, there's, like, the Bradford situation where he, like, left, went to Oklahoma, came back, and it's like, yeah, he's available. It's like... Are you sure about that? Right. <laughs> like, I, I, like, I, you know, we collectively know a lot. You certainly know more than me about the SEC, but it's like, I don't know if I've seen that, but are we sure that guy can play on Saturday? I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a very telling week ahead. LSU is, is feeling the pressure to get right because that SEC West, boy, I'll tell you what. They're going to expose LSU. It's coming. They're, they're coming. <laughs> they absolutely are. I think it's more like a 31 to 17 type of game, and LSU wins but fails to cover. Tulane, Ole Miss. Ole Miss, 14.5 point favorite. The over under I have four mentions of Tulane giving Oklahoma a fight. That spread is a major respect to Tulane because Ole Miss has looked mm -hmm. real good to start off the year. Will, as we've said, um, Tulane. Best program in the state of Louisiana, some would say. Best team in Louisiana, some yes, sir. <laughs> Willie Fritz is coolest logo. We can we can at least put that one out. The coolest, uh, that wave logo is so sick. Not man. even close. We talked about it on Sunday, but if you haven't Googled the Tulane logo, the, the, the relatively modern logo, maybe you don't keep tabs on Tulane, do so right now. Do yourself a favor. Willie Fritz is always rumored to be on the move. And then he's thrown out there as a candidate. If you read any Power Five opening and you see a list of 10 candidates, there's a 90% chance that Willie Fritz is gonna be on that list. And then for whatever reason, he doesn't get a Power Five job. I really wonder how many places that he has interviewed at. And that's because you might not necessarily see, oh, he had that 11 win season at Tulane or something like that, but they're gonna make their fourth consecutive bowl game this year. Before he got there, they hadn't been to consecutive bowl games since 1980. That's a, how's that for a 1980 joke, right? Like 40 years, <laughs> wow. 40 years not going to consecutive bowl games. As we mentioned, best uniforms, probably not gonna help them in this matchup. I think Ole Miss is gonna roll. And 
I've yeah. talked about Michael Pratt, their, their starting quarterback. I think he's really good. I think he makes some plays in this one. And you could say, well, you know, we watched what their defense did against Spencer Radler. He had two interceptions in that game. You know what, though? I almost said this in the preseason, and I regret not doing it because I thought people would just point to the turnover issues, and I sort of backed off, but I'm done being a coward. Matt Corral, good. Matt Corral's a better quarterback than Spencer Radler. Let's Seriously, go. watch those two play football and tell me that Matt Corral lacks the things that Spencer Radler has because he makes better decisions, he's more mobile, the arm talent, um, just as good. He's not necessarily gonna hurt you. You can throw 60 yard bombs with Matt Corral. He's also a better leader than Spencer Radler is too. And we've had signs for the last two years that suggest that. So yeah, that's kind of why I'm taking Ole Miss to, to not sleep on Tulane as well because they already exposed Spencer Radler in, in a weird way. And I, I think for, for the sake of Ole Miss, kind of nice that Oklahoma did that. And I think Ole Miss has a balanced attack Matt Corral continues his Heisman campaign and they win like 45 to 17. I said enough nice things about Tulane to make that justified, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's a very interesting point. And it's like, yeah, it's like the big bad, like the negative for Corral is like these picks. But like we've talked about, it's like, I think he had five and then six picks in two games. If you take those two games out, like Spencer Rattler makes like, yeah, like Spencer Rattler makes like, those kind of decisions in like almost every game, but he doesn't really like, I hate to be that he doesn't play in the SEC guy, but it's like, you see him make some throws where you're like, who do you think you right. are, guy? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, you can't, like, if it was a guy that was just like this, like Jake Fromm type guy, like 2017 Jake Fromm, where it's like he never turns the ball over. It's like, he's smart, makes the right read. If you're weighing that kind of guy against Matt Corral, that would be a pro, but against Spencer Rattler, it's like, they're the same guy. One's just a little bit like, I don't, I don't really know. They're very similar. I was blown away at some of the lack of preseason discussion about Matt Corral as a future first round pick, as a legitimate yeah. Heisman candidate. And I know that now he's got the Heisman buzz. But it's like, he, he kind of did mm -hmm. what we expected him to do in these first two weeks. And it's almost like everybody kind of forgot, oh wait, Matt Corral is really, really good. And, and if you were just using those two games last year and Arkansas fans, I, I, I get it, LSU fans as well. I just thought that that was such an overblown thing, and he's extraordinary. I would take him to lead my team any day. Stanford, 12 and a half point favorite on the road in Nash Vegas. Vandy, the over-under is pretty obvious, and you can predict what it was. Six mentions of this being a battle of academic first schools. You can call it a nerd bowl. I'm gonna call it a make the world go round bowl, because hmm. we need the Stanfords and the Vandys of the world. We absolutely do. They paved the way, they do some big time things. Stanford got Clay Helton fired. So I'm not exactly sure, did, sure, like why is that spread only 12 and a half? David Shaw's team rolled at USC. And I think on the flip side, maybe that spread is so low because of Vandy's comeback late against Colorado State, a much inferior opponent compared to Stanford. Vandy might have broken Steve Adazio, the Colorado State coach. I don't know if you saw this, weird hire to begin with after he was fired at Boston College. He lost to Vandy and then went on this rant and he said that he wanted to talk about the positives. Guys making a million and a half a year just dropped to 0-2 with losses to an FCS school and Vandy, but wants to discuss how explosive his team was. Sure guy, okay, anyway. Stanford should be able to. I wish I had that much optimism within my soul. That's all I'm gonna say. But he said it in an angry way that made you think, let's be optimistic. Yeah, let's that's exactly it. it. And so you're kind of wondering, 
huh, maybe Vandy is capable of breaking an opponent. No, it's not. It, it's probably not going to happen against against Stanford. Uh, I think Stanford should be able to run the ball against Vandy. Nathaniel Pete, this guy can jet. From Columbia, too. I don't know how Mizzou let him slip away, but, but he did. I think Vandy's defense probably lets him slip away a few times. Even though I think Vandy's offense found a little bit of juice in the passing game, Ken Seals, Chris Pierce, Camp Johnson, I'm going to guess Stanford is more like the team who demolished USC than the one who couldn't stay on the field with Kansas State in the opener. So give me Stanford to win by at least two touchdowns, though the Stanford offense in the past, uh, not exactly lighting up scoreboards from coast to coast. Haven't been known for that. Well, it's hilarious, right? There's like these teams. It's like Iowa, Stanford, Wisconsin. They're usually pretty consistent, but it's like you never really know what version of this team you're getting until you see it. And like that's what Stanford showed last week. It's like, oh, this is a good Stanford team. This yeah. is a team that. And but if they're bad, it's like I watched them get blown out against UCF. It's like every year it's just a little roll of the dice. It's like they could be this same team but bad, or this same team but good. Who knows? I think Stanford, David Shaw specifically. I think he is West Coast Paul Crest. I'm squatting on that take. Squatting on that. Okay. Inherited a very good situation. He's going to win you a lot of football games. And I still question how good of, a, of an offensive mind he is. And I kind of wonder if he, like, long term, if it really is, if he really is as good of a coach as people think he is. Just a thought. Although I know they got the limitations that they're working with, both at Wisconsin and at Stanford with some of the, the academic type stuff. But... Just a thought, squatting on that take. All right, Auburn, Penn State, college game day gonna be in the house in Happy Valley. Penn State's a six and a half point favorite. The over under I have, one and a half Bo Nix touchdown passes. Now, oh, okay. <laughs> I got some numbers for you. Now is the part of the program where we go over the Bo Nix road splits, which you know I, I, I have plenty of familiarity discussing. 54 and a half percent passer. QB rating of 105.4, 10 TD ratio, 5.7 yards per pass attempt. What about the rushing? Everybody that supports. Hold on, how many games is this? Do you, do you know My that? Bad. I'm sorry, that's. My bad, should have said that to start. <laughs> These are nine true road games that Bonix has played in in his career. Oh, nine. Okay. <laughs> There's a large enough sample size here. That's almost a full season worth here. Whenever you criticize Bonix's passing to Auburn fans, they say, well, you're not talking about the rushing. He averaged 23 rushing yards per game on the road. Not very much. And I know that sacks kind of take away from some of that as well, but not, not game changing with his legs on the road. Four and five record overall in those true road games. His team hit 30 points in two of those nine road games. And both of those were against defenses who finished outside of the top 115 in FBS. The top 115? Yes. Chad Morris's 2019 Arkansas team and 2020 Ole Miss last year, who was, as you would say, very sorry on defense. Penn State's defense, not sorry. Number 16 in the country, very good. That's having traveled to Wisconsin and having crushed a Ball State team who was seven and one last year. Last Bo Nix stat, and this one gets back to the over-under why I set it at one and a half touchdown passes. Bo Nix, again, he has played in nine true road games the only time that he had multiple touchdown passes, 2019 against a Chad Morris Arkansas team, which that just in general should have an asterisk next to it. Any win against a Chad Morris team, just moving forward, I think we, we should, that's like being an FCS opponent. 
sorry, Arkansas fans, your life is good now. We can we can have fun. We can we we can you know talk about the the good times that you're that y'all are living in. That's the glow up. If you yeah, big time glow up for Arkansas in the 2020s. 2010s just wasn't their decade. 2020s different story. That stuff matters to me more than these first two games that we've seen Bonex play. This is the ultimate showcase game for him in many ways. But the problem is that Penn State might have the best group of linebackers outside of Alabama and Georgia and all of college football. Brandon Smith, Ellis Brooks, Jesse Lucchetta, these guys get after it. They haven't allowed a 20-yard run all year. There's going to be a lot of pressure on Tank to carry a heavy workload, but it wouldn't surprise me if we saw a lot of Jarquez Hunter in this as well. He's got four runs of 20-plus yards this year. He is that home run play threat. The true freshman has been a revelation for that Auburn backfield. And if you're going to beat Penn State, you need those chunk plays. Wisconsin got into the red zone four times against Penn State and scored once. I can't see my way to an Auburn cover or win here. Even though I think in this game, the positive for Auburn is that their secondary can absolutely capitalize on a Sean Clifford mistake or two. Far from perfect quarterback. Those are coming, but Bo Nix playing mistake-free football in that atmosphere? No. I close my eyes and I think about the whiteout. First full capacity whiteout in nearly two years. College game day going to be there. And I just think to myself, Bo Nix is going to be running for his life. I think Penn State wins 28 to 14. But I'll say this. This would be the ultimate flex for the SEC. In a couple of ways. People always say, hey, you know, the SEC never travels north, which is actually true. Matt Brown had this stat. Auburn hasn't been to a Big Ten venue since 1931. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. This is only the third time that they've ever played Penn State in the first two were, were in bowl games. This is only the third time that a ranked SEC team visited a ranked Big Ten team. The first two, 2011 Alabama when they went to Penn State, ironically enough, and then 1965 Georgia when they traveled up to Michigan. That's it. The SEC is 6-2 in non-conference play against Power 5 competition this year. Win this one, and it would be four wins against top 15 teams for the SEC in non-conference play. Texas, Clemson, Miami, Penn State. That would be massive for the entire, should the SEC get a second team into the college football playoff thing. Forget about just one team. Getting two teams in would be what we would be talking about. If you're in the anti-SEC crowd, you had better be rooting for Penn State in this one. Because if you're in the anti-SEC crowd, you've had a very rough 20 years. It's been, yeah, it, it hasn't been your century. <laughs> you'll, you'll get there, though, eventually, maybe. I don't know. Will, am I crazy for thinking that Auburn is going to be climbing uphill throughout this one? No, I mean, it's interesting because it's like they're Auburn's first two games. And like we, we joked about it, it's like the best two teams in the SEC are Arkansas and Auburn just based on resume so far. And it's like Auburn has just been electric so far i mean in terms of they haven't played anybody they played some sorry teams but in terms of what you wanted to see so far in those oh, games absolutely. we talked about it it's like we you know what i'm saying like week one i remember us going like okay like akron's bad like how many like how many points would be a concerning win they went ahead and put up 60 and then 62 in those two games and it's like you know looking at bo nicks and a guy that has been very streaky uh you look at this offense and and what they've been able to do and it looks like he's getting comfortable um it, this is a big time like i hate to say prove it game oh it is but, you know we talked about new we, we talked about Nubo Knicks, and it's a little bit early to put that much of a stress on this one game, but it's like, yeah, like if they can kind of get something going against Penn State, it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, they're 
they're kind of in the mix, you know what I'm saying? So, I, I don't know. We had pretty low expectations for Auburn coming into this year. I'm not necessarily going to back off of that because we haven't seen them play anyone. I know I keep kind of repeating myself, but it's like, that being said, we'll see. I, I kind of want to throw out the Gus Malzahn Bo stats because Bo is like, Gus, Gus just struggled with, you know what I'm saying, like pretty good quarterbacks. Like, he just never really figured out the quarterback thing his old time at Auburn. So, I want to give Gus the, or, um, Bo the benefit of the doubt. Is it six and a half? Six and a half. Yep. I would say Penn State wins, but they don't cover. Okay. I think this is going to be a good game, and and I, I think it's going to be back and forth. And credit to Auburn's AD, who clearly is just play anybody anytime, because Auburn will have one game a year. They'll play Washington, Oregon, Clemson, somebody, where it's like, oh, wow, this is something. Like, thankfully, Auburn is just a treat with scheduling. So this is going to be a great this one. This one was scheduled back in 2016, before the start of that season, which is kind of crazy to think about huh. how long ago that was. And these matchups take forever, and everybody wants to schedule them so far in advance. But yes, I agree with you. And I'm glad that we're going to get this game. I'm glad that it is at a, a, a true campus is a true like mm -hmm. home and home and not, not a neutral site deal because we want to see that and that's why college game day is going to be there for this one if bo nicks balls out look I'm, I'm gonna give him his love i'm gonna give him his love on sunday if he goes in there and takes care of that penn state defense look i'll be singing his praises i promise auburn fans lock of the week and real quick note on that because i remember like breezing by this early early in the season they uh penn state already beat a Good Wisconsin team, a ranked Wisconsin team week one. That was a classic Big Ten game with 16 to 10. So it's like Penn State's already kind of been through the fire too. So if Auburn pulls this one out, this is going to be a quality win. No question. Absolutely. Asked. Absolutely. Lock of the week. Thank you, Malik Willis. Easy lock cover against Troy. They're up 14 in that one for <laughs> yeah, at the end. And then Troy scores a touchdown, but still covered easily. Thank you to Liberty. Cincinnati's going to cover three and a half at Indiana. I called my shot on this one Ooh. back in April. <laughs> this is not a hedge. This is not a hedge. If, it, if anything, I have more of a rooting interest for Cincinnati after saying that Cincinnati was going to make the playoff. So right. I'm going to stick with that. A little bit worried after that slow start against Murray State. It was like 7-7 seven to seven at halftime. Um, then they rolled in the second half. Probably a little bit of looking ahead for them. Um, this all-important two-game stretch for them. So, so key at Indiana, then a bye, and then you go to Notre Dame. I think the Cincinnati defense makes it a long day for Michael Penix. My Jay Sanders chases him around. Sauce Gardner, two interceptions. Penix ain't right yet. <laughs> like Indiana rolled this past week, but the guy averaged 4.3 yards per attempt against Idaho. He's going to, oh, yeah, no. not good, not great. He's going to get sped up. Would you say he got vandalized? Oh, well. We made it, what is it? We're, we're about yeah, 50, 50 plus minutes into this podcast without a dad joke, and you are the first one to fire that one off. Tip of the cap. Yes, sir. I think this is a rough game for the Indiana quarterback. I, I think he gets sped up. I, I think he gets forced into some bad throws against a defense that's really similar to Iowa, maybe even better. I don't know if people are talking about the Cincinnati defense yet. Cincinnati won't get the benefit of facing a ranked Indiana team because of how badly Iowa beat Indiana, one of my locks of the week back in week one, but it will get a really solid road win to set up that Notre Dame showdown. But then watch like Notre Dame lose to Wisconsin, you know, uh, at Soldier Field, and then, you know, Cincinnati's playoff chances are hurt, what, whatever. Lock of the week, Cincinnati covered three and a half on the road. The playoff push continues for the Bearcats. All right, let's go to my interviews. First, Kentucky quarterback Will Levis. Didn't just talk about bananas, I promise. 
Chris Oren gave us great insight on Anthony Richardson, Bama, Florida, and then much, much more around the SEC. And then we'll end with a little something different. Talk to our guy, Garrett, from the UGA Spike Squad. So first, Will Levis, then we're going to go to CD, and then Garrett. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Kentucky quarterback Will Levis. Will, first question is an obvious one. How sick are you of talking about bananas? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm not sick of it. I mean, people have a lot of questions, as they should. It's definitely not normal. But um, it's it's been a fun little trend, and uh, I've just been kind of riding it as long as uh, people kind of want to. I've got a suggestion. If you do get sick of it, and if that time comes to get everyone off the, the banana thing, all you have to do is post another video, but this time you're eating an onion like you would eat an apple. Are you capable of doing something like that? Uh, I'm definitely capable, but I don't know if, uh, if I would do that, but if anything, maybe I'll just eat it regularly tell people that the trend's over. Yeah, smart idea, smart idea. So in, in non-banana things, you did something this past weekend that it hit home a little bit. Last week we had Blaze Aldridge on our show. Great guest, he was awesome. Um, I'm sure though that on that play, I think you took his soul when you dropped the hammer on him. Why were you so mean to Blaze? <laughs> There's nothing personal against him. I mean, it was just where it was in, in my way. It didn't matter who it was going to be. Um, but I mean, he's a good player and uh, I think I just caught him a little off guard, but uh, I was just glad I was able to get the first down and keep the drive going. To be fair, I told Blaze about the banana thing uh, about you last week when he came on, and he, he said he wasn't aware of it, but that he was going to have to come up with some banana-related trash talk or something. Did he have anything like that for you? Uh, no, I didn't do anything about that, no. That's that's good, because I, I, I don't think that that would have gone over very well, especially the way that they, they pl that played out for you. Um, be honest with me. Yeah. Do you enjoy trucking a linebacker more than a 50-yard bomb? Nah, I probably like like throwing a, a lifelong touchdown a little more, but it is definitely satisfying. And, uh, uh, it's just a part of my game, just my physicality and just with my size that um, not necessarily against linebackers is the best idea. To be on some deep knees, like can uh, lower my shoulder and get some extra yards, but I just got to be smart with uh, how and when I do it. But if I can do it effectively, uh, I'll definitely use it to my advantage when, when I can. So up until you showed up at Kentucky, Kentucky fans didn't really see a whole lot of 50-yard bombs. You're part of this new offensive identity with Liam Cohen. We had Wando on here in the spring, and what he said sold him was that Cohen showed him film of Cooper Cup and said, that's the type of role that you're going to have if you come play for us here. Did he show you Jared Goff film, Jared Goff film to, to, to sell you, or how exactly did that process go down? Yeah, he showed me some uh, uh, clips and just cut-ups of the Rams offense and I did some little research of my own just like watching some of their game film and I just really liked how the offenses ran all the strategies involved in it and then just putting myself in Goff's shoes and seeing the throws he can make um, seeing that it's it's fits my skill set and the throws um, that, and the plays that I can make as well and also every day like when we're go watching film and seeing how combination route combinations and how plays should work it's really cool that we can turn on the nfl tape and watch uh those guys at that next level running the exact same plays out of the exact same formations that that we do and it's, it's really good for us to see kind of how it's supposed to look and it's something that we can strive to uh, attain in our game 
how real was that for you being sold a vision of an offense and your role in it going through the recruiting process you had power five interest and you could have had kind of your pick after the sample size that you had last year which i thought was really positive at penn state but how, how critical was that and where else you know did you kind of get sold and and did did teams kind of see you in the role that you're in now or was it a little bit all over the place yeah i think that teams were recruiting me as a quarterback and I think Kentucky I mean just one of the reasons one of the biggest reasons why I ended up coming here is that coach Cohen and coach Stoops believed in me as a quarterback that could run that offense efficiently and how it needed to be ran uh, to get us to win a lot of games and um, I by me seeing that they believed in me that meant a lot to me because I, I believed in myself as well and my ability to do that so um, it was just a matter of me coming here and and doing well throughout the summer working out and then when it got to camp just executing and showing that I can make those throws and I can be that type of pocket passer um, that can run an offense like this so it's, it's definitely the role that I've been looking forward to and what I know that I'm capable of and that's definitely also what um, teams were kind of looking out of me I think uh, as well. I remember watching that game last year, uh, the Nebraska game, and you come in and you don't have to say this, so I will. I thought Penn State's offensive game plan for you sort of sucked, and I didn't really understand why they didn't give you more opportunities to, to really use your arm and stretch the field. Did you feel like you were misused in that offense at Penn State? I would have definitely liked to throw the ball a little more, but I think that just with how the role they had me in, I think I did a pretty good job in what I was doing. I mean, if it was going in there to get short yardage, just use my big frame and um, fall forward for those yards, I, w I was down to do whatever I could to help the team win. But um, was given a little some opportunities here and there um, to throw the ball. But it's really not – there's nothing like – it's nothing like going out there and being a starting quarterback and having the opportunity to get in a rhythm and to get the reps with the first-team offense every single day and every week um, to just feel comfortable. Like, you can't – can't be a good or as good as a starting quarterback as you can be if, if you're not the starting quarterback you know like you're just thrown in there and um to run a couple plays here and there like you just can't get in that rhythm like I said before but just to be able to be named the starting quarterback has allowed me to develop a lot from, you know from a leadership standpoint and just how I connect with the other players from a chemistry standpoint as well and it's just um, helped me become uh, a much better player. Go figure that that day against Nebraska, you and Wandell on the same field, but playing for different teams. Your connection, though, yeah. and everybody can see this, you know, your connection's off the charts. The third and 12 conversion that y'all connected on in, in the fourth quarter against Mizzou, did you know exactly where you were going with that pre-snap? Because I know you looked off the safety, but it felt like you were never going to not target Wandell on that play. So it was it was a man defense that we got. They were doing some things earlier in the game where they were showing that exact look and then backing out of it and playing either cover three or cover two. And so that, that kind of caught us off guard a little bit at the beginning, but towards the end of the game, we were pretty much just calling man-beating plays and then um, with the zone answers, so just knowing how to react and um, when to throw the different combinations that work against the two different coverages. And they, they ended up pretty much pressing Wandell out of the slot. And we had a freeze call and we called the play in where he was running that inside seam route. And I was like, well, I mean, if they're going to press him, uh, we just said, Hey, I just said, Hey, like Wandell's better than that guy. I just need to look off that safety. He's playing off really high and I can drop that in there for a first down. So um, that was our best man beater for that play. So that was pretty much all I was thinking was definitely that, that route, either that route to run or to throw it away. 
but uh, had to look off that safety with how high he was, and Wondell ran a great route, and we were able to convert. That, that confirmed everything I thought about that play, and, and that's really difficult to establish when you show up in the summer, and, and I've talked about this a lot, the quarterbacks who come into the SEC during the summer, it's really difficult to get going and, and to develop and to learn that, that offense. You know, Joe Burrow did it in 2018, but Joe Burrow kind of struggled that first year, and the offense was different than the one that he ultimately got to run in 2019. But I, I think that's something that's kind of underrated about what you've done to start, is to have that rapport with guys from the jump. And I, I think that, you know, coming in there and being comfortable is, is something that you deserve a lot of praise for. What was the most difficult thing about coming in over the summer when, you know, you're, you're coming in to the middle of a quarterback battle, you got a hometown hero there, you got the, you know, the blue chip recruit, Joey Gatewood. What was challenging about stepping into that spot when you did? I think it was just getting the trust of the guys and so just being that leader for, for all those guys. I needed to, first and foremost, learn all these guys' names in such a short period of time and to just learn about them and to be the best kind of teammate and leader I could be so that they can trust me as not only a quarterback, but their, their leader. And um, when I was named captain a couple of weeks ago, that was really special to me because it just showed that I, I definitely did work really hard over the summer with that. And it was my biggest focus. I was able to focus a lot more on that side of my game just because I wasn't taking classes uh, until the fall started. So it was, it was all football. And then it was all just the building relationships aspect of my um position here so uh that was that was huge for me and then on top of that obviously learning the offense and then once i got to camp just being as uh, mentally prepared as possible for um getting those live live reps and to prove that i can be the starting quarterback for this program are you getting recognized already around campus because that's that's not always a given i think when a guy steps in and you're you know you, you get there late and to, to explode the way that you have, though, I don't know anything like this in recent memory with a transfer at Kentucky, the way that you've gone about it. Are you getting recognized pretty much everywhere you go? Uh, sometimes. I mean, not, not too often, but um, all my classes are like right across the street from where, where my uh, apartment is. And I just got to go right back and forth there and then right back and forth to the facility. So I'm not really out that much, but definitely gotten recognized a couple of times here and there. Do you have a, a peak stoop story yet? Because I think we see Stoops and the way that he comes across. He comes across incredibly genuine, I think, to the media. But behind closed doors, the guy that you get to deal with, that you know he's going to be on you if, if there's a, a pre-snap mistake. And I know you've just seen some of the sideline interactions with him and whatnot. But is there like kind of a story that stands out with your, your early interactions with him? Um, not really like an inspirational story, but there's just a funny one from this past game over the weekend. But um, so we were we had the ball kneeling down at the end of the fourth quarter, and um, I was told at first like we're good, we can just kneel it three times and we'll be good, game over. And then after the first kneel, we kind of jogged over to the sideline, and Stoops was uh, telling me how I had to wait, I had to wait. We were, we were coming off a timeout, and I thought he meant like wait to milk the clock down. And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean wait? Like we're coming off a timeout, you just got to snap it right away. And so I got up there. I'm looking at the play clock. I'm looking at the at the game clock. Game clock's not moving. Play clock's going down. I'm sitting there waiting to snap the ball. Everyone's like, what are you doing? And wait until like three seconds, snap the ball, look over to the sideline. Stoops is pissed. And we just had a little miscommunication thing. He wanted me to go like slow victory where I kind of get the snap and then kind of wait back for, to burn a few seconds to get the play clock under 40 seconds for the next play so that it would be over. And that was just kind of funny because he was, he was all pissed off, but um, was able to get that corrected and glad we got on the same page. 
And um, but yeah, he's he's got some energy to him. Uh, in in the hotel Friday or on Saturday before we left for the game, he showed some emotion, got us all fired up. He like knocked down like a whiteboard in the corner of the room as he was kind of going on a little rant. So that was funny. But um, he's a great guy. He brings a lot of energy to the program. He respects us. We respect him, and um, I love him as my coach. I'm so glad that you brought up that instance at the end of the game because a lot of people were watching on TV and they keep showing Coach Drinkwitz on the Mizzou sideline and he's flipping out and everybody can make out what he's saying. He's saying he can't do that. He can't do that because you he's he argued that you mimicked the kneel at the end of the game and then you didn't go down right away. What was the thought process behind it? Did you did you actually like was that something A that you were aware of and then B like did you consciously do something like that? No, so we have a call. It's called slow victory for an exact situation like that. And it's it's kind of like get the snap, take a couple paces back, and expect the D-line to kind of come at you, buy as much time as possible, and then go down. So, I mean, uh, I actually bo- bobbled the snap a little bit, which is really scary. But um, <laughs> so I ended up grabbing it. I think that might have looked like why I almost kneeled down because I kind of had to like re- just like reposition the ball in my hands. But step back uh line didn't really come tried to get back to the original line of scrimmage and then just went down after a few seconds and luckily it was enough to uh just kneel it one more time or wait the clock out uh for that next play so that we didn't have to punt you should have just gone over to the mizzou sideline and said look man i almost fumbled i almost gave you a chance to actually win this game there's no reason to freak out but i think if you were watching that to the naked eye i think that was just a such a bizarre sequence you usually don't see games like end like that but what a what a pressure packed way to to end your first sec game sec competition um i know you've had a limited sample size so far but you've seen what it's like in the big 10 i know you didn't necessarily grow up in this region of the country but is it all that it's cracked up to be Oh, yeah. I mean, we, like, obviously at the beginning of the game, like, we had a little bit of a cushion, but just right away it was it was like, all right, we're in a dogfight, and that's how it's going to be every single SEC game, regardless of um, who's at home, who's away, who's favored, who's not. Um, you, you always know that there's going to be uh, a game and everyone's going to bring their A game for those interconference games. And I'm just looking forward to more of those and just hopefully uh, we win as much as we can, you know. It just means more. I heard you say it. That was sprinkled somewhere in there. We'll just add that in over the top. That that, that works. Will, I want to get you out of here with five rapid-fire questions. Just first thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Yeah, sounds good. Excellent. So I I saw as a true freshman, you said that you could throw a football 76 yards, but you said getting to 80 yards would be cool. Can you throw at 80 yards yet? Uh, I, I've never, tr- I haven't tried in a while. Crow hop, I can definitely get like, I think I can get 80 honestly on a good day for sure. Yeah. Is that what about what about just flat footed? How much could you get? Um, probably like, I mean, I hit the goalpost on my, from my knee on the 50, so that's already 60. Um, so I, I don't know, probably like 70, 65, 70. Goodness, those biomechanics, uh, the, the expert that you visited with in the offseason, it's coming in handy. We can see it, and you can see it in the throwing motion. Um, you kind of went viral for, for some of that stuff, the, some of the offseason throwing where everybody kind of sees that 30-second clip, and they're like, oh, my God, why didn't he get to throw more at Penn State? You've gone viral both on and off the field. What's the secret to that? Um, I don't know. I think it's just... Uh, 
not necessarily with the football stuff, but having a good personality, showing different sides of yourself. I mean, with that banana thing, that was just me messing around and look what that turned into. But um, I don't know. For the football stuff, I'd just say uh, have a strong arm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll work on that. You you said that you relaxed before a game by listening to pre-2012 Justin Bieber. Why do you hate Despacito and, uh, and love yourself? No, I, I don't hate them. I think that they're great tunes, just uh, can't beat the classics, you know. Is it because he went through puberty that you don't like him anymore? No, I, I love him even more now. It's just that I like his old stuff a little more. <laughs> the original hits, nothing wrong with that. Um, you said your dream, your football, bio, by the way, your, your bio on, on Kentucky's website, for those who haven't seen it, you need to go check this out because it's just, it's, it's three minutes of entertainment, I, I promise you that. So one of the things in there, you said that your, your dream job post-football is being a stay-at-home dad with a wife who earns six figures. Why not seven figures? Yeah, I've been asked that, and uh, I don't want to be too greedy. I want to live a humble lifestyle, but definitely on the high end, maybe like eight hundred, nine hundred thousand. But um, seven figures would be would be fine. I definitely wouldn't complain. High, so high six figures. Then we'll update the bio to say that. <laughs> yeah. Less. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that works. Uh, last question for you: What kind of season do you need to have to a feel satisfied and like year one at Kentucky was a success, and b even more importantly, get that NIL deal with Levi's? <laughs> uh, I'm just taking it one game at a time. I mean, we want to win every game. That's that's the motto. But um, uh, right now we're focused on Chattanooga and and hopefully we can get that done and then on to South Carolina. But as of right now, just focus on one game at a time and. I think we got the ability to, to win every, anybody that we come across as long as we bring our A game and uh, just going to focus on working on getting that done. That was and, a great uh, political answer. If Steel comes, I think that'd be, that'd be really funny. I think it's possible. We'll see. I think if we get to like, you know, 40 touchdown passes this year, I think that's, that's automatic. You come back, you're on all the preseason watch lists, all those different things. I think Levi's would have pretty much no choice but to give you the NIL deal. <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty sweet. Well, this has been great, man. Really, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything that you got going on this season. Beyond and also best of luck with the post-football job as well. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a repeat guest, the guy that we know very, very well on these airwaves. It is Chris Doring. CD, um, we're going to talk a lot of Bama, Florida, of course. The fact that this game doesn't happen as often as it should in the regular season is kind of a, a separate subject, but it does kind of feel special in its own unique way. But before we do that, you, sir, are the new host of what I just can assume is the grittiest podcast that there is. And there are a lot of gritty <laughs> podcasts out there, but you and our good friend Jacob Hester hosting uh, pre-gaming the SEC, you decided to do something like this just because you missed Hester, I assume, right? It, it literally is the case. And first and foremost, Connor, it's good to be back with you, man. I appreciate you having me. Always a fun opportunity to catch up. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the podcast that Jacob Hester and I are doing together really just came from our time where we were working on Sirius XM on SEC this morning. He was filling for Peter Burns, as we all know, whose nickname is Part-Time Pete. So it got to be a lot of <laughs> us working together on that show. And then he rudely went and uh, had his show moved. Uh, he and T. Bob Hebert doing a show in, in Baton Rouge that uh, morning drive. So it, it completely interrupted our opportunity to work together. So we just talked over the summer and said, man, 
miss each other. We love uh, doing stuff together. It'd be a great opportunity for us to to hook up as a Florida guy and as an LSU guy and and uh, have some fun talking SEC football. So. We're a couple weeks in, and uh, every week the downloads grow. And, and the great part about it is, it doesn't really matter to us because we're not doing it for anybody other than ourselves, and, and hopefully the entertainment of a, a few folks that choose to download and listen. That's the grittiest part about it is that it's not like it's some <laughs> SEC network back thing or something like that. It's two people who are associated with the network and who obviously are associated so much so with their respective programs. But you guys doing this is for the love of the game. And that is the ultimate gritty move. You can just never stop being CD, the gritty receiver. But I, I know that you've had a, a lot of like you've, you've thrown out stuff on there and you, it's kind of forces you to form opinions in a different sort of way. Right. Like you do so much stuff with SEC Network now to where you're always coming up with opinions, but when you come up with it in a podcast form, like I, I see some of the stuff, you know, some of the stuff that'll come out as well. And it's like, oh, like that's that's a thought that I haven't really gone through. Or I haven't really seen you talk about on SEC Network Airwaves that I feel like you're getting to. Do you feel like you're kind of getting out of your, your like main usual studio role by getting to do some of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what I actually love about doing radio for SiriusXM on the SEC channel is that it's not as constrained as what it is on television. You know, we, we have very short segments to be able to hit certain thoughts, but you don't really have much time to expound on 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 things. So, uh, doing radio and and you know, in the same vein, doing podcasts, you, you get to have a little more long form. You get to to be able to. You know, throw stuff out there just like you're having a conversation without having to have you know much uh, implications of, of, of you know of trying to fit into what everybody else is talking about or keep continuity. So it's almost a stream of consciousness, which I I've enjoyed and you know I think I've actually been pretty happy with a lot of the things that I've mentioned. You know, last week on our podcast uh, we talked about you know who the third best team in the conference was, and and I actually started thinking my my speed. Very well might be Kentucky. Well, after this week, you could say Kentucky. You could maybe throw Arkansas in the mix. I think we're a little concerned about A and M after what we saw on Saturday, and, and certainly very concerned about where LSU is right now. So, I, I really believe that there could be an argument, a uh, topic that we'll probably talk about this week on the SEC uh, Network that that sprang from well, what we talked about on the podcast, and that's trying to decide who the third best team in the league is right now. I can't believe AP voters didn't have Kentucky in the top 25. That to me is baffling. How one could watch Miami play football and watch Kentucky play football and say that Miami deserves a top 25 spot and Kentucky does not is why sometimes you just got to strip down the uniform and you got to just try and look at things in a, in a different sort of lens. But you said something it's exactly there. Right. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you, but you're, you're right about that because I think there's this, there's this thought of what Kentucky has been in the past. And for those that aren't around this conference and haven't seen, this Kentucky is not what Kentucky used to be. You know, I mean, what, what Mark Stoops has done is remarkable. What their expectation is for themselves, what the fan base expects from them, the way they go about playing football, the physicality that they have now, the complimentary passing game, which we didn't see much against Missouri, but we certainly got an opportunity to see a lot of it uh, the previous week uh, in their opener against ULM. Um, the explosiveness with a guy like Wandale Robinson, like this is a totally different team. And for those that like to indulge in some of the uh, Vegas odds, I guarantee you that there's going to be a lot of fans that don't catch on to what Kentucky's capable of. And it's going to help those that understand what Kentucky is about now when it comes to, uh, to putting a wager down every once in a while. 
you and Wandell Robinson, both SEC East slot receivers, special <laughs> in your own unique ways. Very similar. He almost, yeah, very, very comparative. I, I'm trying to think of a comp for Wandell because I came into this year thinking Rondell Moore. That's what he wants to be. That's what he wants to be with Liam Cohen. And as I kind of watch his role and I see the way that he's used, I don't think it's quite Rondell because, you know, Rondell, Rondell Moore and the way that he was used with Jeff Brom and his offense, it was high volume. That guy's getting like 15 to 20 targets a game. And Wandell's not going to be used in that same sort of way. And it's interesting because like they're connected because they're boys and they go way back. But I almost think it's kind of like a Jalen Waddle, right? Like the explosiveness, the way that he's used to stretch the field vertically, and it's not necessarily a high volume sort of deal, but you just feel like every single time he flips it into that different gear, he is on a level that so far in two games it's brief and you know even going back to some of the stuff in nebraska albeit in a different offense you just feel like nobody can really stay on on that guy for you know 30 yards and he's gonna get separation who's maybe kind of the is there a comp in mind that you see with him and the way that he's being used i think it's a great comparison when you when you talk about Jalen waddle primarily because he's such a, a, an impact player with the ball in his hands so you have to figure out how to get it to him in a bunch of different ways. I mean, you saw against Missouri, they hit him on the speed sweep, let us under center, uh, the old school uh, jet sweep, uh, taking the handoff uh, and, and, and get to the outside, what, 60-yard run I think he had there. Um, you know, obviously catching deep balls, they got it to him against ULM on the end of round. Uh, I think it, that may have gotten called back, but like, he is on that get it to list that coaches talk about. And uh, I didn't know a ton about him before you know, this season, but just watching the impact that he's had, not only on, on you know, defenses and what he can do, but getting other guys open. Josh Ali is benefiting because of, of, uh, of Wondell uh, uh, Robinson and what, what he can do. Like, it, it is a, it's a, a testament uh, to his athleticism, a, te- a testament to the type of receiver he is. And I think he, he's elevated the play of everybody on that uh, receiving core so far this season. The big game that everybody is looking forward to in the SEC this week, the very first SEC on CBS game, Bama at Florida. And for the record, we are recording this at 8 o'clock on a Sunday night, so we'll kind of wait and see the updates that come with Anthony Richardson and then on the other side of the ball for Alabama with Will Anderson and two guys that are obviously really important and have become very important in a quick amount of time. You've got to be just doing a victory lap right now because you came on here six months ago and you talked about and it wasn't six months ago I guess that was more like four months ago whatever it was but you talked about there really wasn't that gap that perceived gap between Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson and you said look out for this kid he is special yeah. and we're seeing it play out and I don't really remember a situation like this that has played out where a guy has been so efficient so electrifying so fast you right now have to just be on cloud nine knowing that you bought all the Anthony Richards Anthony Richardson stock like what a year ago yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Connor, because, you know, everybody's on that train now. But literally, I was going around doing these interviews and podcasts and, and everything else during the spring, and everybody wanted to talk about Emory Jones, and it actually was me who had to kind of divert the conversation. Say, before we annoyed Emory Jones as the, 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 the heir apparent to the throne, which, you know, he's waited his turn. I really believe that Anthony Richardson was going to give him a run for his money, not because Henry Jones is going to struggle or, or not do the job well, but just because of how good 
Anthony Richardson is and the athleticism that he has. And now everybody's seeing that um, this was a guy, and I, I probably have an unfair advantage uh, being that he's from Gainesville, uh, went to Eastside High School. I'm from Gainesville. I live in Gainesville currently. So I knew about Anthony Richardson even before he was you know, signed with the University of Florida. And so I, I, I did have a little bit of an advantage there. But just talking to some of the, the players and coaches, and the, this guy stepped on campus um, early. He, he got in there during the bowl. I guess it was the 2019 season, I believe, like the bowl preparation where he was allowed to practice with the team on campus before they left for their bowl games. And, like, people were amazed at his arm strength and what he was able to do out there. And just he continues to do that. Now everybody's seeing it. Like, I, I would go to practice and see the rhythm that, that the offense had when he was in there and, and what he's able to do and the command. Like, everybody's seeing that now. And I, I think the, the maybe the most impressive thing is the, the explosiveness and the excitement that he has when the ball is in his hands. Like, this guy's a physical freak, big, strong guy, but can run away from folks. You see him doing backflips before the game, which I would probably recommend he not do anymore. But, like, it's a, uh, it, 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 this guy is a, a, a genetic freak with everything that he can do. And, again, I'm not, I'm not down on Emory Jones. I'm just really high on Anthony Richardson. And I, I, I think it actually is kind of a cool dynamic, the way that they're being used right now. I know everybody wants to, to have – you know, make make Dan Mullen decide who's going to be your starting quarterback, but seems to be working right now. And I don't again, we don't know what the health status is of, of Anthony Richardson, but you know, I think it, it, it would. If you have both of those guys available, I would imagine that you'll see both of them play against Alabama on Saturday. So I'm going to do exactly what you just said that everybody wants people to do. And I'm going to ask you to put yourself in the shoes of, of Dan Mullen and understanding that it's in some cases it should be simple. And then in some cases it's not. And you understand the dynamics that have gone into Emory's development. And there is a significance of trying to stick with a quarterback that you have had in your system for three plus years. And you've tried to develop if all things are equal. And again, this is totally hypothetical because at the time we're recording this, we don't know all the information about Anthony Richardson and his hamstring. But if all things are equal, are you would you roll out Anthony Richardson as your starter against Alabama on Saturday? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, very hypothetical there when you're saying that all things are equal because I don't think all things are equal. I mean, the, the experience in this offense obviously, the, you know, goes to Anthony Richardson. The, the experience in games. Uh, excuse me, it goes to Emory Jones. The experience in games goes to Emory Jones and having you know, been inserted in, in, in big-time situations the last couple of years. I mean, you remember Emory uh, throwing some, some, some big completions against Auburn in the first half when Kyle Trask went down in 2019. You, you've seen Emory Jones play in Tiger Stadium in 2019 against the team that ultimately won the national championship. So it's not equal in experience. It's not equal in number of years that he's been around the offense. Um, and we we all don't get that's the thing I think is crazy like we don't get to see what goes on in practices every single day we don't get to see what happens in the meeting rooms like we've seen Anthony Richardson on Saturday and USF throw three passes and so is there a fear of him being able to, to manage the entire playbook when it comes to the passing game and uh, are they trying to protect him from something and bring him along slowly we know Dan Mullen is typically a guy that doesn't want to insert underclassmen into situations that are going to potentially leave them open for failure. Um, you go back even at Mississippi State, he's always you know brought guys along slowly, and, and he talked about it to us before, about wanting them to have the roadmap for when they inevitably fall off the top of the mountain, 
knowing how to get back up. So I do think this is, it's about obviously winning and being successful now. But I also think it's, it's, it's a little bit of loyalty in there for Emory Jones, having had him wait around as long as he did. He was the first quarterback signee of, of Dan Muller's tenure in Gainesville. Um, I think it's also about protecting Anthony Richardson a little bit too and making sure he's ready for that role when, when he takes it eventually. So I would imagine that it's Emory. I, again, I've been telling everybody since the spring, as you alluded to earlier, that, that, uh, that it, it, Anthony Richardson is going to, at some point in time, I imagine, be the starting quarterback this year. And I'll continue to stand behind that. But um, this week, I, without knowing what goes on in those meeting rooms and, and on the practice field every single day, I can't in, in good faith tell you that, that I would roll uh, Anthony Richardson out in, in week three against Alabama in your first SEC game of the season. What does Dan Mullen owe Emory Jones? Yeah, that's a that's a um, it's a very good question because I think the t- one of the toughest things that, that coaches have to do now, two things is one manage quarterbacks because we've seen it even dating back to Kelly Bryant, right? The idea that that he decides to leave three games into the season to preserve his, his another year of eligibility to go play elsewhere. Like, guys are very apt if they're not getting what they believe to be what's owed to them, they're, they're moving on. And so managing quarterbacks is incredibly difficult, particularly highly recruited quarterbacks. And when you have two guys like that that run the ball as well as they do, and often as they do, inevitably one of them is going to get dinged up. So you've got to have both of those guys on the roster. I mean, that's, that's an incredible balancing act that Dan Mullen's having to, to try to, to – to, the balance right now. So uh, I, I think the other thing is, too, it comes to recruiting. And if you recruit a guy and you don't treat him rightly or, or what the perception is, um, you know, you see high school quarterbacks, uh, high school coaches of these guys getting upset. Um, you see high school players watching how these guys are managed and what they're told and what actually ends up being the, the uh, reality. So, I mean, it really is tough trying to manage the expectation level of 18 to 22 year old kids and, and that's why I think a lot of people when they're talking about getting into coaching now would rather go coach in the NFL than they would in college because of how difficult recruiting has become managing the transfer portal managing your roster in general um, and, and specifically managing the quarterback position you talk about that dynamic and knowing what the transfer portal can hold. My cynical brain, and Florida fans, I don't wish this upon you, but I, I'm just strictly curious what this would look like. But now with the way that the portal is set up, the way that the NIL is set up as well, of what Anthony Richardson's open market value would be if he left right now, and the deals that would be set up to have him come to a different program without those restrictions, knowing that you can set up NIL deals for him to get a, a $3 million deal if, if Quinn Ewers can get something for $1.4 million, Anthony Richardson and what he's shown on the college on the college level can certainly get something like that. But again, that's not going to happen. That's just the way that my cynical brain is working. But, but, but you're right. It's a great it's a great point, though, right, Connor? I mean, we're seeing a high school guy leave his high school early so he can go enroll and get paid at Ohio State, like. What, we're already seeing guys be successful at the college level. Why would why would schools not have things set up to pay more money than they would pay a high school kid coming out when you have you know a, a sample size of them being successful at the college level? And I you know I, I I'm all for 
guys being able to, to take advantage of, of who they are and the name they've created for themselves. But at the same time, like this, this, the Pandora's box and what we were already seeing is being possible. BYU having somebody give every scholar, every walk-on player money to cover their schooling. Like uh, it reminds me of the old days of stories about Alabama and Bear Bryant hiding football players on the swim team or hiding them on the tennis team and, and using those scholarships. Like what are we get? What's the next way that we're going to see a school be able to take advantage of, of name image like this and one-time transfer eligibility, everything else that we've, we've gone through in the last 12 months. Yeah, Miami's been putting them on the track team forever. You know, that's that stuff is sure. that stuff's nothing new. And if you can get away with it, then why wouldn't you do it? I think you look around the SEC and you 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 could see some of these situations pop up. And and not to necessarily say that some of these are inevitably going to happen midseason, but I, I think we need to brace ourselves for that in this reality. And it's still too early to predict any of that stuff. And I don't think we should assume that that's going to happen in a place like Florida with two quarterbacks. But it is just something worth keeping in mind and understanding that there are dynamics at play here and you take a, a big risk if you go after Anthony Richardson because of the message that it sends to Emory Jones fair or not that's just one of the the basic realities of the world that we're we're living in um, I want to ask you real quick on Sam Pittman we all at the time that this hire was made in 2019 scratched our head and wondered all right not a name that anybody was really thinking about and the entire mindset for Arkansas was, you know what, maybe we do have to go a little bit unconventional and we have to get somebody who can recruit and we have to get somebody who doesn't necessarily have the traditional background because quite frankly, it hasn't worked for us. Even when we swung big, we've missed. Sam Pittman and the job that he's done at Arkansas in the last year plus, what what do you, as, a, as somebody who has been in the, that locker room before, what is so magnetic about Sam Pittman and why he has been able to change that culture as quickly as he has? Because in all Power 5 football, there might not have been two or three programs worse than what, where Arkansas was when he took the job. Think about that, Connor. I mentioned it on SEC Now or football, SEC Football Final on Saturday night. Like, they rushed the field after that win over Texas. And I'm thinking, wow, Texas is a what, 15, 16th ranked team in the country at the time. I know they're rivals and, and dating back to the old Southwest Conference days, but was that really a win that was worthy of, of storming the field like that? And then I thought about, well, it was less than two years ago when they were losing home games to group of five schools like Western Kentucky and San Jose State. And so they've come a long way, and all of that is due to Sam Pittman, what he did to come in and create excitement around the program, what he did to get players largely uh, that were not recruited by him to buy in, and, and the coaches that he's been able to accumulate around him is nothing short of amazing. So they have every right to be excited and to storm the field, and now they're ranked for the first time in uh, since, what, 2014, I think. I mean, that's the first ranked home win since 2016. There's a lot of pent-up joy that was let out on Saturday night there in Fayetteville, and I'm, for one, very excited to see it and very happy for that fan base. And listening to, to Sam Pittman talk, the post-game interview with the television crew, the post-game press conference, the guy is just incredibly humble and deflects praise and, and, and points out what his players have done and what his assistant coaches have done and doesn't need to have any of that. You know, you, you look at a guy that, has been a lifelong assistant coach and has been okay with that and then gets this opportunity. I'm with you, Connor. I, I was like, they hired Sam Pittman. I'm like, what What are they doing? You know, this guy 
you know him because he's offensive line coach at Georgia. You know him because he's a good recruiter. But what in the hell would lead you to believe that this is the right guy to be the head coach of an SEC program? And it's turned out to be the perfect fit. And I, I, I love the contrarian point of view, doing things differently than what everybody else is doing. That, that's what Mark Stoops does at Kentucky. You know, the, the recruiting um, concentric circles going into Ohio, going north when everybody else is in the conference, going south, uh, realizing some of your limitations and playing to the strengths of those. Like, I feel like it's the same situation in Arkansas. Knowing who you are, a high level of, of self-awareness for him personally and, and for his program. And uh, I just, it's so much fun to watch. I'm so excited about, you know, what they can do. And I was just a couple of weeks ago talking about how I thought they overachieved in 2020. And they have set the bar too high for themselves by winning three games in an SEC-only schedule last year. But after watching the way they played the other night, watching that run game, watching how physical they are up front, the fact that Texas knew that Arkansas was going to continue to run the ball and couldn't do anything about it, and they just completely demoralized that defense, it's exciting to see. And I just I can't wait to continue to see what they're able to build with the success they're having and how they're able to recruit more talent, top talent, and, uh, and continue to build much like what Coach Deuce has done in Lexington. Here's an interesting hypothetical. I'm, I'm going to give you four offensive minds in the SEC. You have to pick the one who's going to get a head coaching job at the FBS level after this season. We'll stay. We'll stay right, right there at Arkansas. You. Let me stop you. No, no, no. Let me, let me stop you for this. The, the answer, Connor, is Jeff Levy. All right. There we go. I, I was going to name him. Is going. Well, I, I figured you were, but I didn't even want to get the choice. All right, go ahead and give me the other choice. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I was pretty sure. I was going to go with, with Kendall Bryles, and then I was going to go with Todd Munkin, and then my doppelganger, Liam Cohen, as well. I was going to throw him in there, but I agree with you that if I had to pick between those four, I'd probably go Levy as well. Yeah, I just I think you know, what, what Ole Miss is doing already, what, going back and watching their offense last year, watching what Jeff Levy did to bring a lot of the UCF concepts and how it was melded together with what Lane Kiffin has just traditionally done, it is incredibly difficult to stop. And I think everybody saw that on Labor Day night when they just completely demolished Louisville and it probably could have been worse. But, uh, you know, I, I think inevitably you're going to see Ole Miss be a 9 or 10 win team this year, which is going to help his stock. And you're going to see Matt Corral be a Heisman Trophy finalist. I've already picked him to win the Heisman this year. I, I'm not changing that opinion right now. All of those things are going to help Jeff Levy ultimately end up getting a, a head coaching job next year. It'll be interesting to see, you know, you see some of these coaches that are that are in demand that are very selective of where they decide to go. I think he could have, you know, there was a lot of people that believed, you know, he would have been the right pick for UCF last year. I don't know if that mm-hmm. was UCF not being interested in him or, or him not being interested in the UCF job, but I think he's going to have enough cachet that he's going to be able to pick whatever job it is that, that he wants and be patient. Because I, I don't know, you know, Everybody wants to coach in the SEC, I would imagine. Well, with the exception of Justin Puente, who just chose to go the ACC route, uh, even though he probably could have been an SEC coach a couple times. But I look at um, – I have to imagine that's what everybody's goal is. That's where you're going to make the most money. That's where you're going to be the, the tested the most. Um, but, I mean, there's four – there's eight new coaches in the league in the last two years. You have Nick Saban in the, in the, in the league. You have Dan Mullen, who has been – you know, uh, three straight New Year's six games. You have Jimbo Fisher, who was on the cusp of being the college football player. Like, 
if any jobs are open this year in the league, it's only going to be one. So, I mean, maybe maybe that that one job could be a, a nice fit for 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 him. You know, I hope Coach O and LSU get the get things back on track, but it'd be interesting to see what route they go. Would they try to go get Joe Brady from the NFL? That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it, or, or would or a guy like Jeff Levy be appealing to them? I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't think that would probably be the LSU choice, but. I think Jeff Levy's going to have the opportunity to have whatever job he ends up wanting to have uh, after the season at Ole Miss and, and Matt Corral we typically have this year. Some big-time assistants in the SEC right now, and several of which I believe will get paid. And then even on the defensive side of the ball with Elko and Arnett and Barry Odom, like those three guys, man, like there, there could legitimately be half a dozen SEC assistants who get FBS head coaching jobs after this season, and it wouldn't necessarily surprise me. So that, that I think, is going to be more so the movement than the head coaching positions within the SEC. So something that definitely I'm going to, I'm going to have to keep tabs on, and maybe I'll have to call my shot on one of these like you did with uh, with Anthony Richardson. I'll let you get out of here by calling your shot. Prediction for Saturday afternoon in the swamp. I don't know if you've come up with one yet or if you've stuck with a final score, but give me what you got for, for Bama and Florida. Golly, Connor. I mean, it's Sunday night at 8 o'clock. I haven't watched <laughs> films of uh, Alabama and Florida's games this weekend yet. So I don't know if I'm going to go on record. Like, I, I, I actually... I wasn't surprised. We talked about this the other day in the studio off camera. Like, what, what do we think the point spread will be? I, I thought it would probably be somewhere around Alabama minus 13, 13 and a half. I saw the initial line on Sunday was 15. Um, but, Kylie, I don't I have a hard time believing. I, I think it will be an unbelievable environment. This is the most talked about game in the swamp in a long, long time. Uh, most desired ticket in a long, long time. Um, the, the, the question to me, I, I thought before the season that Florida was going to win this game because of the inexperience at the quarterback position, because of the inexperience at the receiver position outside of Mechie, because of a new offensive coordinator. But watching the way they played against Miami certainly gave me second thoughts about that. But I, I, after seeing Miami, I'm not a believer in Miami after watching them against App State on Saturday. So, you know, I... I, I would love nothing more as a Florida, the Florida boy in me, the, the Florida alum, would love nothing more than to, to see Florida win that game. But uh, Lee, I, it's hard to pick against Alabama right now. I, I'm not going on record yet, but I, I just I, I would I probably lean Alabama at this point in time. I don't know, man. What about you? Um, gosh. I don't blame you for not wanting to go on record on, on Sunday night as we sit here and talk, but I, I, I had the same the same exact thought process about the inexperience with Bryce Young and if going into that atmosphere was going to impact him. And then I saw some of the things that he did in that opener, albeit a neutral site one against Miami, and I thought, you know what? I think this kid kind of already has it, and that would terrify me. Now, covering the spread is very different than beating Bama straight up, but Alabama hasn't lost a game in the first half of the schedule since 2015. And there's a reason that Saban has been on his team the way that he has this past week. And I would have a very tough time seeing Florida stay on the field with Alabama, given the mistakes that we've seen Emory Jones make. So I, I went from thinking Florida's going to keep it really close to now being like, I think Bama could win this game by 28. And it could have very Bama A&M type vibes of the first three years of the Jimbo Fisher era. Here's the problem that I have, Connor. Like, Going into the season, there were a couple things that I wanted to see from Florida. One, could their offensive line be more impactful in the run game? And Florida's yep. been able to run the ball really, really well against FAU and USF. 
And can the defensive line get more penetration without having to blitz? Can they be more disruptive against the run game? Can they create pressure with just their front four? And they've done that in both games as well. But how much do I believe that they've been tested by those offensive and defensive lines of, of FAU and USF? That's the, the big problem for me as I watch the tape. They look better, but you know the, the competition is certainly not what they're going to face on Saturday. So it'll be, it'll be an amazing test for the Gators. It's going to be an amazing atmosphere. I'm excited to, to see the Swamp uh, get back to, to what it once was. Uh, my daughter is a, a sophomore at Florida and was at the game against FAU and, and talked about how cool it was to see it like that. Well, it used to be like that every single Saturday, and I'm hoping that Coach Mullen's getting it back to being that way on every Saturday. But I know for sure, without a doubt, it's going to be an old-school Swamp kind of environment uh, when the tide rolls in at 3.30 on Saturday afternoon. Can't wait. CD, looking forward to it. This has been awesome, as usual. Really appreciate the time, and uh, we'll talk soon, man. Thanks, Connor. Appreciate it, man. It's game time with Crystal, and it's time to square up your chance to win tickets. Crystal is running a score, a sackful, and a seat sweepstakes. The W? Tickets to the South's biggest football game. Oh yeah, you heard that right. If you're trying to score tickets, Crystal's your winning edge, or square. Crystal is your move to keep all your fans in your life fueled throughout the season. Pick up some original crystal sackfuls, chili cheese pups, or their new crispier fries to feed everyone at your tailgate or viewing party this season. Download the app and make it easy to order today. Make a game plan with Crystal because when you keep Crystal on your side this season, you could score the W. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Garrett Cribs, the VP of the UGA Spike Squad. Garrett, gonna level with you. We've had people on this show who wear shoulder pads on Saturdays, but never anyone who wears them with spikes. So you are the very first one. Are you more dangerous than a Georgia linebacker? Um, in terms of Nicobe Dean, I would say no. Fair. But I feel like loudness ones, I think we're a little bit louder than our linebackers. Okay, I, I think that's that's very legit. and. I don't want to necessarily say that all George Monty Rice was pretty good as well, so kind of put him in that Nicobe Dean territory. They are stacked at that position, but you know this this tradition is is very unique. I think you look across the landscape of college football, you see different student sections and stuff like that. But tell me how this thing got started, because I think we assume that all student sections are the same. But Georgia, y'all are always in the front row right there. You're going to be on TV a ton. It's a unique look. It stands out. Everybody kind of knows it when they see it. So this started about 11 years ago. And I think that we had a group of students who just got together and was like, you know, it'd be pretty cool if we, you know, like we're UGA, we've got the culture. Let's find a way for the students to do it. So I think they came up with the idea to put spikes in the pads and decided that they were going to be the most dedicated fans in all of the country. And from then on, we've been carrying the tradition of showing up early in the pads, rain, sun, uh, rain, sun, or shine, we're there. And yeah. Take me through the process of going from student to receiving spiked shoulder pads and becoming a member of the Spike Squad. So to be on the squad, um, we post our recruitment information at the beginning of the fall every year. And the way we have it is we have an interest meeting where we'll have all of our people interested. They'll come and we'll just talk about, you know, what's expected of you on the squad, what all we do, 
and just kind of some general information. And then if this sounds like something they want to do, they'll sign up for an interview time. And that weekend we will interview them and we're just kind of gauge to see if they fit our, our loud personalities, energetic, not afraid to look silly on camera and just kind of see how they fit overall with the squad. Okay. You say the interview process, that has to include, and if it doesn't, this needs to be a thing moving forward. How do you look with spiked shoulder pads on? If you look like you handle the pads well, and if you could wear the pads well, and that's not to say it's a certain physique, but you know, like kind of broader shoulder person maybe, then then all right, you know, you're gonna pass the test. What's what's a what's a question that's asked during that interview process? Is it like, do you guys need need to know how deep your Georgia fandom lies? Like how dedicated you are to going to games? Like is that kind of how that works? Um, so we usually ask questions uh, just to kind of get a feel of, like how much of a Georgia fan you are and how much you really love the dogs. So like one of our questions we'll ask is, you know, what does go dogs mean to you? And a lot of people would say like, oh, you know, it's like a, it's a good cheer. We yell when we yell the touchdown or whatever. But then we'll get some people who come in with answers and they'll be like, you know, my family, big Georgia fans, you know, we say go dogs. And it just kind of shows like a family that UGA is. Uh, we'll ask for their um, knowledge of the SEC, if they can name all 14 SEC schools. And then we'll ask if they can sing a song for us, uh, Hail to Georgia, which I had to learn that in about two days. It's very catchy, by the way. But yeah, just some general Georgia questions to see how big of a diehard fan we got. How much did you cry after second and 26? Did you not go to work for six months? Like these are all fair questions that I think you're you're allowed to, to ask in that spot. But you are trying to find those specific people who, if you're gonna be on camera and if you're gonna represent what people say is you know the front lines of the student section, whatever you wanna call it, that's important. The question about wearing the pads away from Sanford Stadium, I don't know if you've been asked this before, but I'd wanna just wear those things to the grocery store and just be like, oh, hey, everybody can recognize that if you wear those out in Athens, you'd be identified in two seconds. Have you dared to wear that away from the stadium or, or like a tailgate or something? Um, so personally, uh, when I lived on campus last year, whenever I would wear the pads, kind of walk like with like my chest pumped out, like, hey, yeah, I'm on Spike Squad. And I'd wear them walking down Lumpkin Street going to the tennis matches or the baseball games. And every now and then it's like you're in a big group or like three or four people with uh, shorter pads, you'll get a car horn, a car horn haunted you every now and then, and a good go dogs. So it's like we're in the like people know who you are in the spikes. So nice. I I believe it. I believe it. How could they not? You see those and, and you recognize, you know, exactly what they are. We often say that certain venues are responsible for like a, a six point advantage. You know, if you watch what Virginia Tech did to UNC, you would say, all right, that, that's that's a home field advantage right there. Specifically, how many points are y'all in the spike squad responsible for on a given Saturday? Um, you know, I don't know because we we get very loud where we are. We try or like we don't try to play mind games, but we're there. Like when you come down to that to our end zone where the uh, Georgia players used to run out, we're going to be loud. We're going to be in your ear. It's going to be kind of hard for you to do what you need to do. But I I think we've helped stop a couple touchdowns before, maybe a couple kicks. And yeah, probably responsible for maybe a false start. Do you guys take, I, yeah. I, I would track that. Like that, that would be a stat I would wanna know is how many times do we feel like we were providing the oomph 
to get that false start called when that left tackle like looks and he just looks down and he shakes his head and he's like man it's just too loud in here that that those points should go to you guys oh yeah we definitely i feel like we contribute the most when we when we force them to make a timeout that's i think that's the biggest energy we have is everyone's confused and they just look over and they just gotta like shamefully take a timeout it just helps especially on third downs that really helps on third downs Agreed. I feel like in a year like this, when the home slate for Georgia, let's be honest, it it looks super lopsided in Georgia's favor. Like y'all are really going to have to bring the extra juice. There's going to be some sleepy home games and you got to experience one this past Saturday. Of course, Georgia comes out firing and the offense takes off, but there's going to be some games where Georgia's a very big favorite. And if they say on the broadcast, you know, Georgia's getting off to a slow start. Am I allowed to blame the spike squad for that? Um, I would say this bike squad does contribute a heavy amount of energy to the student section, I would say. Um, and you know, with this past game with UAB, I don't think it was as dead as everyone thinks it was just because we didn't really expect Stetson Bennett to come out as explosive as he was. We, we thought that would be JT. He'd come out, start throwing 30 yard passes like it was nothing, but we didn't really expect it from JT or from Stetson. So that really got us you know, hyped up and very energetic. And I think we kind of kept the momentum going when we saw, like, all the different players getting touches, like Brock Bowers. We hadn't seen a lot of him, and we were excited to see him get some touchdowns and just all the different plays we could run. But, no, in the future, I think the energy in the stadium kind of creates itself. Uh, South Carolina this weekend, you know, it's a night game, and for many of our squad, for me, actually, it'll be our first nighttime with a packed stadium, which is something that we haven't had before. And we just got all of our newbies in, and this will be their first night game in the, uh, in the pads. So I think the energy there just kind of creates itself. That's going to be awesome. I'm excited for you all to experience that because a night game at Sanford Stadium is is a very fun experience and getting to be there. The way that you guys will be representing Georgia, I know, will be awesome. Uh, before I let you go, Garrett, uh, tell, tell the audience what you've got going on with our friends at Crystal for Saturday's game. So Crystal has reached out to us, and we have – brainstormed the idea that we need a red out for South Carolina this weekend. You know, last time they were in Stanford, they came in and they kind of they kind of punched us in the mouth. And, you know, we didn't like the outcome of that. But, you know, we're back. We have a full stadium. It's a 7 o'clock night game. You can't really ask for anything more. So we decided a red out was the way to go just to show uh, South Carolina how angry we are and how we're not going to let that happen again. I love it. And if anybody thinks back to that 2019 game and you see the spike squad, if you if you dare to watch the replay, you would not see a whole lot of moments that were worth getting excited about. That that game was as frustrating as you could be, as frustrating as, as it can get for a home fan. I think Saturday goes a little bit differently for you. Garrett, really, really appreciate the time, man. Uh, hope that you get some, some positive moments. And if y'all get to end the 1980 jokes this year, uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be happy for you. I'll be happy for all your newbies getting to experience that. Thank you. I wanted to end with something on USC real quick. I know it's not SEC, but I can almost guarantee that this is going to impact the SEC in some way, shape, or form. And that can be true regardless of if an SEC coach is poached. For what I for for what it's worth though, I don't think an SEC coach, at least not an SEC head coach, is going to be poached. Not even Lane. The last SEC head coach to leave the conference for another Power 5 head coaching gig without getting fired was James Franklin going from Vandy to Penn State. 
That was after 2013. When people say the SEC is a destination conference, that's what they can point to. Could James Franklin be the guy for USC? Eh, we'll see how that plays out, but probably not. This is what James Franklin does. What James Franklin will likely do is the same thing that many SEC and national coaches are going to do. That is, use the USC vacancy to get a raise. If you hear that your coach is linked to the USC job, get in line. They're, they're doing something that's going to be felt by the entire college football world. If we look back on inflation with coach salaries, with buyouts in 2021, which it's hard to see even what inflation looks like with how ridiculous the buyouts are. But if we look mm -hmm. back and see that, that rise, that spike in 2021, it'll be a direct result of what USC did. Doing this so early in the season is going to create mass chaos. And it's gonna be a ripple effect across the sport. How does this stuff get out? The, oh, there's mutual interest between this coach and this program, which Dan Patrick already had, the mutual interest between James Franklin and USC. It's pretty easy how this stuff gets out though. All Jimmy Sexton has to do is send one text to Ross Dellinger or Pete Thamel or Brett McMurphy saying USC has serious interest in Coach X. It's the easiest mm -hmm. thing to float out there because chances are USC, USC is looking at a million things and any coach can do what Luke Fickle did, which was just say, yeah, I haven't talked to anyone. I'm mid-season. That's mm -hmm. why you pay an agent 7% commission so that you can keep your hands clean of this entire thing. But if I'm looking at USC and potential SEC coordinators who could be in the mix, there's two that come to mind. And even that would probably be further down their list of candidates. But Jeff Levy is going to get a power five head coaching gig. I believe oh, that. Oh man. I believe okay. that through and through. And depending on what happens this year, it would probably take Matt Corral having a Heisman Trophy season. But if that were to happen, Jeff Levy would be intriguing given the connection that Lane would, Lane would talk him up. You know that. Lane yep. would, Lane's gonna do whatever he can to get Levy an opportunity. He's gonna make sure that Levy is also taken care of. But there's certain things that are just inevitable if you do something like that. A la, you know, Tom Herman leading the Ohio State offense with three different quarterbacks to a national championship and in doing so and then getting, you know, his first job. But maybe that's a little bit too much for Levy. Bill O'Brien could absolutely be one and done in Alabama if they win a national championship because everybody always forgets about Bill O'Brien and what he did at Penn State and it's kind yeah. of underrated. Even those guys are probably long shots. O'Brien would make more sense to go back to Penn State and take over if Franklin were to leave, though I don't necessarily think that happens. I don't think Urban even goes to USC. And oh yeah, I texted you about that. I like had, I joked about it. I was like, oh yeah, Urban Meyer, watch out. Like, and you were like, put down. You you were like, put down money right now. I was like, okay, <laughs> never mind. You obviously have a better read on this situation than I do. If anybody wants, if anybody wants to lay down some odds here, I'll take the field and, and I'll give you Urban because I think his college coaching days are truly done. And I'm mm -hmm. not factoring in what he said, kind of shooting down that report. With, with Jaguars, imagine asking a head coach after his first game, hey, what about the interest in blah, blah, blah? And I, I should say the way that the reporter asked the question, he gave Urban the, f the floor to refute that, but I don't think Urban's gonna be the next coach at USC. Mario he was miserable, man. That, if you haven't seen the video of that answer, goodness, that dude is, I couldn't imagine having that much money and being that miserable, but that's Urban Meyer's whole life. Um, Urban Meyer looks constantly like the Papa John's meme. Just, every single time that oh my, guy experiences yeah. any sort of failure, you just see it all over him, everywhere. It washes over his entire body. I don't know how Urban's mm -hmm. gonna handle a two and 14 year with the Jags.
Might have talked to it's our coming. Kubernetes. Yeah, it's definitely coming. Two guys that I think are really interesting at the Power 5 level who could get poached theoretically, Mario Cristobal at Oregon and PJ Fleck. And for everybody saying Mario Cristobal's got a great situation at Oregon, he absolutely does. But only the fourth highest paid coach in the Pac-12. They don't pay their oh. coaches that well. They really don't. If Oregon was this dream destination job, Chip Kelly would have never left for the NFL. Just saying, just gonna throw that out there. They're, they are not necessarily deep in the resources that one would think given the Nike connection, given the Phil Knight stuff, because yeah, it'd be great to have that in the NIL era. You don't think USC would be incredible to, to, be, to, to, to be able to market to in the NIL era? All those opportunities in LA. Oh yeah. I mean, if USC gets good again, good Lord, that, that, is, that is just going to be a, a machine. And of course, easier said than done, and it's been really difficult for pretty much the entire post Pete Carroll era. But I do think that those two guys are worth mentioning. Don't sleep on Cliff Kingsbury. Cardinals got off to a great start to the NFL season, but if they were to tank and go like two and six, Interesting name to float out there. He was very briefly the USC offensive coordinator for like two seconds. Somehow he failed upwards and got an NFL head coaching job. Um, anyways, USC probably gonna be a lightning rod for the next two and a half months. And I'm saying this because if you are worried about your coach leaving for USC, just trust me when I say that everybody is worried about that. And probably not I'm gonna not. happen to you, your specific kid. <laughs> well, I, 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 I had Odron. People throwing that name out there, even though he's on his own different hot seat. But could a USC do something like that? You just you just never know with some of this stuff. And that's an attractive job. I'm not going to get into the ranking of, of prestige of jobs because I think that's a bit overblown. And I think that, that can be a little bit too time sensitive. But USC is a great job. There, there is no doubt. And there are a lot of people that are going to be really interested in that. Mm -hmm. Will, any, you want to take any flyers on a USC head coach? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised you didn't bring up Joe Moorhead, man. So I did on Twitter. I don't want to do that on every single platform that I go on, but they are going to hire an offensive mind. And if it means making your biggest competition, your only competition in the Pac-12 weaker, there's something to be said for that. I think they would pursue Cristobal probably over Joe Moorhead, though you just never know. If, if my guy Joe leads, a, leads an Oregon playoff team, leads that offense, just, just never know. I think he could get another head coaching job. Maybe not quite to the prestige of USC, but things like this can happen in a hurry. Yeah, they like USC is one of those jobs that it's like to me it sounds great in theory. They're like bordering on that almost like I don't want to throw any names out. Let's call it Nebraska. They're bowling on like almost that territory where it's just like, uh, like Pete Carroll was so good there. So, 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 so good. He was rattling off these, you know, top five finishes, championships, Rose Bowl wins. They allegedly won the Rose Bowl in 2016. I don't remember that. I'm sure what? it was a great game to beat Penn State. Penn State, unbelievable game. Oh my gosh. I, sure, take out that season and it has been rough, man. Their last Rose Bowl, I mean, apparent, they've only appeared in it once since Pete Carroll was the head coach and they won in 2008, uh, which was like one of their last like true contender seasons, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Clay Helton had an 11-3 season, like kind of snuck in there. Like I said, I just personally have never really looked at the college football landscape in the modern era and been like, yeah, I'm worried about USC. So it's one of those things where it's like the donors and the boosters, it's like Texas, that's a good example. Yeah, the donors and the boosters have this like vision of like what it has been and what it should be. And they keep hiring guys or they keep having this infrastructure that just 
just doesn't live up to it. So I don't know. I mean, there are certain guys. You talked about James Franklin. Quick James Franklin story, by the way. You'll, you'll enjoy this. I remember one time he came to my high school. You know, when I went to Hoover. He was handing out business cards, and he had metal uh, business cards that had little holes in them. And it was the coolest thing anyone had ever seen. They were blown away. Weird. Oh, that's really weird. It's, it, they were like, it was like a, it was at Vandy. It was at Vandy. They were like these black metal business cards that had holes in it. Like it was, uh, what's that texture? You know what I'm talking about? It's like cheesecloth almost. And I remember like the football players like passing around. It was like the swaggiest thing in the world. The Vandy coach like showed up and was saying, hey, hey son, give me a call or whatever. Like, so he kind of has that. Okay, well, you don't think it's cool. So never mind. I'm just trying, <laughs> buddy, I'm just trying to picture what this is looking like. How a metal business card would hold up in your wallet. I, but it was it's a power move because it eats your whole wallet. You know, it's metal. <laughs> but point being, it's like, that's the vibe he has. At Vandy, he had like that amount of like, you know, swag about him. So I think he could work there, honestly. I think you have to have that, like you have to come in and be like, okay, boom, we're bringing a program. So we're bringing a vibe. We're bringing, also shout out to Oregon being the fourth highest paid Pac-12 job. That's rough. But anyway, it, it's, it's a more of a rebuild than I think people want to admit. We've talked a lot about, with Emery Picker, the 15-minute games that you can rewatch, the historic games that you can go back and watch. 2016 Rose Bowl, USC Penn State was fun. There were dudes all over the field that day. Saquon Barkley, one of the best runs I've ever seen in the history of college football. I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that. Chris Godwin was in that game as well. You had Mike Gesicki on the Penn State side. Penn State had dudes. That game was fun. It was decided at the very end. I think it was the final, like 52 to 49 or something. Awesome, objectively awesome game that year. And that Penn State team was really, really good. And of course, of course, Joe Moorhead was on the sidelines. So Trace McSorley was- Added bonus. Oh yeah. Trace McSorley's out there hitting dingers. Fun game. Juwan Johnson, your new favorite player on the Saints, right? Yes, sir. That's my boy right there. He's a receiver in, in college. We'll forget that. Anyways, that's enough Juwan Johnson talk. Will, you are going to be away this weekend celebrating your birthday. Happy birthday to you. Hope you enjoy yourself. You'll be back next week. Planned for this mm -hmm. Sunday. We're gonna be catching up with our good friend, Matt Hayes. We're gonna run through all the different SEC stuff, a lot of different storylines that we'll, we'll probably get to. We'll talk a little bit of coaching search type of stuff as well. And yeah, we'll, we'll touch on a little bit of everything. So look forward to that. Hopefully everybody was able to get all of this episode in before before their, their week three games. Or maybe listen to this right now going to your week three games. And if you are, thank you. Appreciate it. Hope you have a nice car ride. Leave us a five-star review. Go subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. Go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever. Go listen to that Peyton Manning episode. Really, really good stuff. Go do that whenever mm -hmm. you get your podcasts. Go join the Facebook group, Saturday Down South Podcast on Facebook group, or on Facebook. Hear your name read on air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.